liberty lockdown please scan your barcode your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold where did it come from and where did it go it requires a fight not tweeting from your phone don't need a king get him off the fucking throne if you're riding with the thought you've always got a home the virus is scared of will come and it'll go the government knows this don't get treated like a hoe Welcome, everybody, to a live stream edition of Liberty Lockdown. I am going to be joined today by the director of the Libertarian Institute, the author of so many incredible books. We're going to talk about one at length today, so I'll I'll spare the titles for now. Uh, He is my friend. He is a legend. He is the greatest anti-war activist on the planet today. He is Scott Horton. I will bring him in in just a second. But before I do, I want to thank our first sponsor for tonight's show, and that is careerhackers.com. If you are in a position where your job is in jeopardy, because they want to force something in your body or you just don't feel like you're on stable footing. This is your opportunity to become a better job applicant and it costs you absolutely nothing. With inflation running rampant, it's a good opportunity to to find a way to stand out in the crowd and your first starting point will be the Daily Job Hunt newsletter, which will give you some information on how to become a a better job applicant. And the way you sign up for that is by going to careerhackers.com. Again, that's careerhackers.com. Without further ado, Scott Horton, welcome in, sir. Hey, man, how are you doing? I'm good. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I spent much of my childhood having borderline panic attacks, if not outright panic attacks, when I first uh, started to research nuclear weapons. So reading mm-hmm. all of your transcribed interviews about this topic was not pleasant for me. Uh, very, very concerning stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry about how big my head is compared to yours in this video, too. I'm gonna... <laughs> Try to sit back a little. <laughs> it's um, funny because in real life, I think my head's like twice as big. I've got a giant yeah, noggin. I'm apparently way closer to my camera than you are here. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, yeah, no. Sorry about the nightmares. Um, <laughs> look, I I think we should get rid of the nukes, and then you won't have to worry about it. Oh, that um, would be that'd be a good starting point. Well, let, let's start there. So uh, the first thing that I didn't really know the difference of, uh, and I'm sure that you could explain after all of these years of research. <clears throat> I, I want to ask you to go into the physics of it, but what is the difference between a fission and a thermonuclear bomb? Yeah. Okay. So um, I, I'm actually going to break it into three for you. So okay. the, the uh, if you look at the two nukes that we used on Japan in World War II, we, Harry Truman, <laughs> um, used on Japan in World War II, um, the Hiroshima bomb was a uranium bomb, uh, a simple gun-type nuke, as they call it. And essentially you have, it's kind of a long bomb and you have a, Ukra- a uranium a pit, a Ukrainian, a uranium pit <laughs> on one end. And then you have essentially a uranium shotgun slug on the other end. And you just fire it down a barrel, down a tube essentially, and smash it into the other one and set it off. They didn't even test that one. They knew it was going to work. No problem. Hmm. And so the, the Trinity test that they did in New Mexico was a test of the same kind of bomb they used on Nagasaki. And that is a, is a plutonium implosion bomb. And this is a more sophisticated device. It's also fission on what you're doing in the same, the same as the uranium bomb is you're taking these uh, very heavy metals, these radioactive isotopes. And you're, what you're doing is you're splitting the atoms and releasing the energy from the nucleus. And so, um, in to set off a plutonium bomb you essentially implode it you fire off 
shape charges from all directions in, at the exact right timing to force enough of a critical mass inside. And that splits the plutonium atoms and leads to the chain reaction that sets off a Nagasaki type implosion bomb. So when uranium bombs are, are very rarely used in any inventories now, almost everything around the world is a plutonium implosion bomb. And because you can miniaturize those and marry them to rockets and things like that, make Got them much it. more deliverable. So it's, it's easier to have a smaller implosion bomb in that sense. The uranium bomb is essentially the easiest one to make if you desperately had to make one. If you were Iran, for example, and decided to finally make one, that'd be the easiest one to have at least one on the shelf. They've been Not within weeks going of, on. Of make, they've been they've been within weeks of making one for about thirty years now. Scott. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, see chapter three um, <laughs> for Iran's nukes there. Um, but then, so uh, to get to your question, the thing is that the Nagasaki bomb there, that implosion fission bomb, that's the blasting cap for setting off an H bomb. And mm. what's going on there is you hear about cold fusion. If only we could get unlimited free energy forever. If only we could figure out cold fusion. And that would be the problem there is when here, instead of splitting a heavy metal uh, uh, element, you're fusing hydrogen, actually isotopes of hydrogen together, these extremely light uh, molecules and and uh, atoms and and fusing them together and releasing all this energy. The problem is, you can't do that unless it's so hot that you could kill a city with it in order to get the fusion to work. Right. Mm. That's why cold fusion. If you could figure out the secret to cold fusion, it would be ultimate free energy for mankind forever. Because right. as it exists right now, you got to set off an A bomb <laughs> to set off an H bomb. Right. And your, your A-bomb is... I don't really want energy out. from uh, that kind of heat. No, thank you. Right. And so so they have essentially an A-bomb is a two-stage... Uh, pardon me, an H-bomb is a two-stage bomb where first an A-bomb goes off and then they have these pellets of hydrogen isotopes essentially surrounded by styrofoam. Um, and I'm not exactly sure why that's the, the yeah. best thing to use at the, you know, for the uh, process or what. But... Um, and then what happens is it gets hot enough that these hydrogen isotopes then fuse together. And that's what gets you up into the megaton range where, you know, you have essentially, if you think about what you've seen of A-bomb tests in the Nevada desert, those are all A-bombs. The stuff you saw on test out in the Pacific Ocean on the Bikini Atoll and Johnson Island and all that, those are the H-bombs that they tested okay. way out there in the Pacific. Those are the big ones. And... So then one of those will kill your whole town. You live in Miami now. One good H-bomb would take out essentially all of South Florida, you know, maybe not all the way to Fort Lauderdale, but it, everything south of Fort Lauderdale essentially would be a wasteland from one good H-bomb. Yeah, oh, maybe goodness. not quite that far north, but pretty far. <clears throat> um, yeah, you, you don't want it regardless. Three would be all of South Florida. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm for sure that. Um, so I was... I was wondering if, well, first off, there, there's this horrifying story about how when they're first doing these tests on on nuclear weapons, because they don't even know if they function, really. It's all theoretical. They're just trying to put it together. And and they they set them off and they set them off, at, you know, at high elevation. And there was a, a real sincere fear that it could burn off our ozone. And they just said, fuck it. And they did it anyways. Like, and when I hear stories like that, 
like it's hard for me to come come to any other conclusion than these people are like out of their fucking minds. Like, is that <laughs> like, yeah. well, well, like otherwise, otherwise, how could they possibly consider that a reasonable risk to take? Look, it, no, it's worse than that. I'm sorry uh, not to correct you, but I mean, what it was was they were afraid that it was burn off the entire atmosphere. Excuse that, me, the atmosphere, not the ozone. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, so our, our atmosphere is like 80 percent nitrogen and 20 percent oxygen. And then th there's fuzzy math in there because there's the remainder is the rest of the gases in the in the atmosphere. But it's like 80 something percent nitrogen. And and uh, the idea was that the the heat from the fission and especially when they did the fusion bombs later that i mean these things burn at hundreds of millions of degrees kelvin hotter than the sun hotter than the center yeah. of the sun literally and the idea was that it could cause a chain reaction um that the the nuclear chain reaction would continue essentially through all the nitrogen in the atmosphere and that then that would be it that in essentially an instant all of the air on the whole planet would be gone. And then the oils, the, the oceans would burn off, would boil off. And that'd be it. That'd be the end of all life on earth. Of course. All life on earth, every blade of grass, every last, everything. And, and yet they and proceed fact, ahead. And they were, and, and they were afraid in different circumstances too, that the, I guess the same chain reaction would just continue on to the, hydrogen in the oceans too that they would essentially you know that the water would split into hydrogen and oxygen and then the hydrogen atoms would then fuse and then would burn off so you would literally have the oceans and not even just boil off away without uh atmosphere and that pressure to hold them down but essentially have a chain reaction that would affect all of the oceans and all of the air on the planet essentially in an instant and and it would be the end of everything and and enrico fermi who is the most pessimistic of the scientists at the time they were essentially all shooting you know throwing darts at the wall and making up stuff one of them right. said oh there's a one in a billion chance well like yeah but how do you calculate that right like you're just making that up right and then the yeah, same you don't now know. fermi was too fermi said he thinks there's a one in ten chance that we're gonna set the atmosphere on fire and it's in the book. Um, Daniel Ellsberg is the source for this. Boy, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm almost certain Daniel Ellsberg is the one who says this in the book. That Albert Speer told Hitler that, look, uh, if we do this nuclear bomb thing, there's a risk we could ignite the atmosphere and end all life on Earth. And Adolf Hitler wanted nothing to do with it. <laughs> And that was the end of that was like one of the reasons that they canceled the German nuclear weapons program is Adolf Hitler was like, man, that's beyond the pale. <laughs> and so they just left it to the Americans to do it instead. But but of course, of course, the the Americans are the undisputed good guys in every conflict. So we have to just assume that they were that's they were right. wise in that decision. I mean, it's just it's so maddening to hear about this. And obviously this happened many decades before. I even existed, but it's still just to think that that there's this handful of people, especially when it's to create a weapon that ultimately didn't even need to be used, as we'll get into later. Uh, it's just horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying that we have such. I mean, I, I've talked a lot lately about the this kind of technocratic takeover of the global governance that we exist under. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is a kind of a, an early example of you know kind of a technocratic view of things where it's like, well, 
we are the smartest people on earth and we're just going to proceed ahead. And I, I it, it's hard for me not to correlate this also to the large hydron collider that just got turned back on yesterday. And I'm just thinking to myself like, man, these people are probably again taking risks that are, you know, apocalyptic in nature. It's like, yes, they're going to smash atoms together at, at speeds that they've never done in human history. And, and yes, it might create innovations and technology that we'll all benefit from. But there's also a chance that they create a fucking black hole like and in and, and the you know with the nuclear uh project that seems like that's what we were and, really risking and i've heard them before and you know i guess you and i'll probably hear from these people after this interview too that people go yes they're creating black holes but they're really small and don't <laughs> be a coward dude everybody knows they're fine they're, look you're so stupid you don't understand the math trust me they're really, really small black holes. <laughs> like, and I'm just going, yeah, but a black hole is a black hole still, right? Like you would call yeah. it something else if it was something else. And like, <laughs> that seems like you could maybe turn Earth inside out with one of those, even if it was really small. I don't know, man. Well, you know, the, the whole the whole idea of a black hole is that it just consumes all matter around it. So if it gets right. to some threshold where it's at that stage, it'll just start to fucking eat everything around it. And we are that. It'll be on our our planet, it just seems like a really you know, dangerous I, risk. I, I remember know. Art Bell talked about the gray goo hypothesis, where they'll invent nanobots that essentially can eat anything and replicate themselves and are so efficient that the whole planet will just turn to one big gray goo over the course of like two and a half weeks. And the nanobots yeah. will just consume the entire planet. And it'll be like this, you know, exponential thing. They'll drink all the water in the oceans and eat the planet all the way down to where it's melting, you know? <laughs> Well, I, I don't want to. I don't want to go that dark, but I, I mean these these are real like serious questions, and I know it it makes me sound like I'm fear mongering, but I like I lose sleep over this stuff sometimes. I'm like I'm like we had people that were testing nuclear bombs that could have burned off the atmosphere. We have people that are currently today, like literally today, they are creating black holes on Earth, and it's just I don't know. It seems crazy. Um, so no, I want to right. look. Oh, wait, on that on that note, if if I could say one more thing about that, I think it's important that you know one of the. Uh, interviewees and there talks about i guess a documentary that he saw or something about the scientists at los alamos and how I mean, and these are some really brilliant geniuses no question about that right yeah for sure but their focus is on just solving this puzzle like you think about we talked about all those nuclear tests there's a lot of different ways to make an h-bomb like i wonder if this one will work I wonder if we can get more bang for our buck if we can figure it this way than that way. And if we do, then we can fit this size of bomb onto that size of missile. And that would open up a new military range of possibilities and the following thing and the thing. And then so they're just so focused on it. You know, it's like you're the you're the a defensive coach for a major ball team. You don't have a lot of other stuff on your mind. Right. Exactly. Like You're doing this job. Yeah. You're like, and how are we going to get to the quarterback? Yeah, or, or being a soldier, being being in the infantry out there. Right. It's not really your job to figure out whether Saddam Hussein's generals organized the attack or what the hell, right? Like, your job is to go out there and do or die, do your mission. You know, mm -hmm. you hear Jocko talk about uh, Jocko Willink, where he was out there fighting against Muqtad al-Sadr's men. But he didn't know who Muqtad al-Sadr was or who Muqtad al-Sadr's men were or who they were in relation to Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani or who they were in relation to Saddam's old regime or why the ghetto was named after his father or what. All he knew was him and his team had an objective. They were going to go in there and achieve it and then go home that night. And then that was it. They didn't, right. and, that, and that's their job. And that's how you become the best Navy SEAL team in the world is 
you focus on doing your job. Well, same thing for setting off H-bombs. If you want to be really good at setting off H-bombs, you can't really spend too much time thinking about whether or not you should be setting off H-bombs, <laughs> right? You've already decided that's the job. Yeah. Now the question is like one of mathematics in your computer model, right? Now the question is one of obtaining the exact right materials and configuring them exactly the way it's specified by the engineers and the blah, 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 blah. So now you're onto these much more narrow questions. And so the broader, in fact, part of it is right, like a diffusion of responsibility. Yeah. Well, the democracy will decide how many H-bombs we need, right? But by the democracy, we see in chapter two, by the democracy, we mean senators bribed by H-bomb manufacturers to foist weapons on the military, whether they even want them or not. And the right. whole thing is just a racket. The, the democracy doesn't decide a damn thing. There's no rational actor in, in the equation anywhere, really. It's all just a bunch of rent seekers all the way down. And so, um, but... If you're the one making the bomb, you go, well, it's somebody else's decision whether I should make the bomb. My job is making the bomb. And mm -hmm. so as the as the responsibility is diffused, everybody can specialize in their one little area. I make, you know, wafer boards for nuclear missiles. And I do a damn good job making those wafer boards. And I make a good salary making those wafer boards. And it's a very important job. Without these wafer boards, these missiles won't fly. And then but come on, man, like some guy in D.C. or Virginia or someone like that decides where we point the missiles and whether to use them or not. My job is making sure that the wafer boards work when the exactly. missiles are launched or you know what I mean? So once people zoom in that close, they're able like you're saying they're madmen, but that's too accurate. But from like zoomed all the way out where you're looking at how they're acting in your reality, right? But mm -hmm. in the world that they're living in, this is completely rational. This is just going to work in the morning. Yeah. This is just the job. And no, what are you going to do? Let somebody who's not as good at it as you do it instead? You of know? course. Yeah. Some Someone's going to do the job. That's kind of the, the drug dealer right. motto. <laughs> um, exactly right. So I, I wanted to ask you about the, and this is kind of off topic, but it was in one of the early chapters and I thought it was an interesting question. Uh, I think you actually posed it, but you were asking, is there any question as to whether or not it was a good idea for Nixon to open up China in 72? And, no, and I, I just thought that that was a, an interesting thing I haven't ever really considered because from a libertarian vantage point, we always err on the side of, yeah, free trade. And, and that's, you know, you send, you send goods, you don't send troops. That's kind of our, our, our mantra. And I lean that way, obviously, naturally, but then at the same time, I, I have, I have no choice, but to kind of reflect on the fact that while they have adopted some of our best traits when it comes to opening up their markets a little bit and having some capitalism, it, it seems that we've also adopted more of their kind of fascistic model and, and you know, socialism yeah. and things of that nature. It, do you think that there is a correlation there? Is there is it causation? I mean, it, it seems like there's definitely a correlation where we become well, closer to China. But is there causation? No, I don't. No, I don't think that's what it, I, I, I mean. There's some causation there, but not in the way that I think you're implying. I look okay. at it more like this is, I mean, first of all, to rewind the thing, the question was posed to Choss Freeman, who yeah. was Nixon's translator when he went and shook hands with Mao. Yeah. And he was like this renowned Foreign Service officer, you know, and now, uh, you know, gadfly and critic. Um, Obama almost made him National Intelligence Director, but the Israel lobby stopped him because he said something reasonable about Israel-Palestine one time or something. <laughs> um, but, but he's a really smart guy. And so the way I posed the question was, and this is something that you hear from right-wingers a lot, 
that it was a mistake. Milton Friedman and all those guys said, if we introduce capitalism to China, then they will not only adopt capitalism, but they'll adopt property rights and freedom and democracy and the American way, you know, along with markets and all of that. Um, and then, so the right-wing critics now say that was a big mistake because what happened was we taught them enough capitalism to be rich and powerful, but not enough freedom to be mm. free. So now they're this evil authoritarian adversary that's also, uh, you know, flush with funds uh, that they can use to confront us and all this. So, you know, I think a lot of that is just overblown. But first sure. of all, people got to understand, and this is something I'll tell you a story if I got the time here. Um, this is one of the reasons. See, I, I didn't really have the Internet a lot in the 90s, man. I read the New American Magazine, which was Will Grigg, who was the best of the Birchers, you know, him and his guys at the New American. And I read the New York Times and the Austin American Statesman and books, but I wasn't really on the Internet that much. And and my conception of the libertarian movement was mostly like, and no offense, because I do like these guys now, but this is I'm just telling the truth about back then. That was like it was this Reason Magazine kind of blue pill stuff that I rolled my eyes at. I would rather hang out with militia guys because at least they care about the Branch Davidians, you know? Right. Um, that was what I cared about. But then, so when I started reading antiwar.com, I was like, oh man, these guys are hardcore and they run Ron Paul articles and like, oh, they're cool. And then from there, I found lewrockwell.com. And one of the things that I liked immediately about Lou Rockwell was for a libertarian, he's pretty right wing. Mm -hmm. And then here he is saying, man, don't you give me this right wing crap about China, man. Like F you right with prejudice says Lou Rockwell. Right. So then, so what's he talking about there? Right. He had this article called from death camp to civilization. And he's essentially like scolding libertarians who are complaining about China. And he's going, let me tell you about China, okay? Mao Zedong starved 40 million people to death trying to make Marxism work, okay? He took the oldest, most, you know, deep and cultured and richest civilization on the planet, and he raised it to the ground, dude, to the ground. People were eating each other, yep. okay? Then... He finally died and Deng Xiaoping and the right wing of the Communist Party took over and said, we're going to stay a dictatorship, but we're going to have markets and property instead of all starving to death. In what has always been, you know, essentially a very entrepreneurial type society anyway. So it's like you people want to trade. Go ahead. You can trade again. Right. Mm -hmm. And so by the time this article, when Lou wrote that article, it, they were complaining about there was some lead paint on some children's toys. It was like, hey, you know, that's bad, but let's take care of it. But let's not freak out and demonize China over like, hey, they got some standards. We need to make sure to like, hey, you guys got to live up to your contract when you promise to use safe paint or whatever it is. But like we can solve this without a demonization campaign and without turning them into, you know, the great yellow peril that we have to be terrified of and all of this stuff. And right. And, you know, to mix metaphors here a little bit, as Harry Brown would say, like, there's no such thing as China, dummy, right? There's just a landmass with a bunch of people on it. And the government of the U.S. and the government of China are both these horrible fictions that stand in the way of intercourse between Americans and Chinese. So let right. us <clears throat> get it on, so to speak, and let our <laughs> government get the hell out of the way. Right. And, and anything our government to do does to interfere with our relationships that we want to create with people in China, 
is our government acting like the government of China? And we should always want as less of that as possible, not more, not ask the government to fix whatever is wrong between us and China, but let us figure out a way to work it out ourselves without relying on them at all. Because what are they going to do? They're just going to ruin everything and make everything that much worse. And look, at the end of the day, this is how big the earth is and Chinese civilization exists and, and they got a lot H of them. Bombs. Right. Yeah, they got 300 H-bombs, which is not nearly as much as Russia, but it's enough to ruin your entire civilization permanently and your afternoon in an afternoon. So I guess we got to figure out a way to get along with them. Other oh, no, than I... simply like, I'm not saying you're suggesting otherwise, but I'm yeah. just saying the, the lesson here is that, you know, the right wing critics who are who are saying it was just kind of sort of how you set it up. Right. Like, was it a mistake? Right. Um, as the right wingers say, was no, like in, in, in fact, like the, the number of Chinese lives saved the increase in standard of living. In fact, see, cause it took them even after Jimmy Carter, like finished the full recognition of China and the, and the, um, you know, the kind of dual, uh, Taiwan policy and all of that stuff. It still took them really another 10 or 11, 12 years to really start kind of implementing capitalism or allowing it to flourish. And now I know a guy who was doing business in China during that exact time. So it was like flying in and out of Shanghai uh, from like 1990 through like 2002 or three. And maybe not even that late, maybe just like through the 90s. And told me like, man, you wouldn't, you just wouldn't believe it to see essentially this small town turn into something comparable to Houston, Texas in 10 years. Mm -hmm. it's just unbelievable no it is i mean it's, and it, it's never happened before anywhere it's almost as like a scientific experiment about like does capitalism work versus does communism work or whatever like well we tried communism and everybody starved to death then we allowed for there to be capitalism right not like implemented capitalism but just allowed people to right. have property and trade it and keep the profit from it and then it was the fastest increase in the standard of living for the most people in the history of the world anywhere by any comparison just oh, absolutely no. unbelievable no it, it's i mean it's miraculous and it and it as you said it's a great case study for you know what giving a little bit more freedom to your people can actually create in reality right now a, so back to your causation though yeah see everything in the world is george w bush's fault man he ruined the whole 21st century got this whole thing all off wrong and the counterfactual is the most obvious one is you know, just if Cheney and Rumsfeld hadn't and the neocons hadn't been there and just Colin Powell was driving the car, we'd have had a much better foreign policy. And he's obviously a war criminal and lied us into war with Iraq. But that was not his policy. They dragged him along for the ride. And yes, he should have resigned. I hold him responsible. But I'm just saying. And not, but the, the best, the real counterfactual would be, you know, the opposite of W. Bush, not just with Cheney and Rumsfeld absent and Wolfowitz absent, but the opposite of W. Bush was Harry Brown, the libertarian mm. candidate for president in the year 2000. And if Harry Brown had been the guy in the chair at the dawn of the 21st century, then he would have won given his Statue of Liberty speech every day until the whole world was bleeding out of their ears, right? But two, he would not be a blood-soaked, hypocritical, murderous monster while he was saying it. He would have yeah. meant every word of it about how we're doing everything we can to perfect liberty here in America. And you in the world, you're not doing enough. 
you're not doing a good enough job as being as libertarian as we're trying to be anyway. And then and then that would have been it. And instead of murdering people every day and lying to everybody about everything every day, he would have told everybody, like, actually, you can have what you want. You just got to allow other people to be free, too, and we'll all be fine. And and um, and so but think about what happened instead. Right. Is W. Bush this just cross eyed, just completely narrow minded idiot. Who, who knew nothing, right? Had no vision of anything other than like trying to look like a man in front of his dad or whatever kind of stupid pathology, but had no vision of like, whoa, I'm in the chair, you know, here at the dawn of the 21st century, at the, the first month of the 21st century. And I get to decide all of this stuff and like, what a responsibility. And instead he just like used that as a gimmick, like, oh, history has called us into action. Now we have to attack Iraq and all this crap. And so what he did was he took our slogans of not just libertarianism slogans, but American slogans of freedom and liberty and justice and peace and a, a, a future of progress. Um, and the shining and, city on the hill. It's yeah, all, and all of all that gone. stuff. And, and then he launched aggressive wars and killed a bunch of innocent people and just absolutely made ridiculous fools out of all of us. And um, and so, you know, in Egypt and in Iran and in China and everywhere in the world, all of that stuff. I mean, honestly, like as as bad as things were in the Cold War and all that, at least we did kind of have an excuse. You could believe that we believed it. They're like, hey, we were just trying to protect you from the commies, man. Sorry if we intervened and propped up your right-wing dictator, but at least we kept the Reds out, right? Something mm -hmm. like that. But after 30 years of this post-Cold War, uh, 40 years of this post-Cold War, um, 30, getting ahead of myself. Um, essentially, I mean, just think about it. It's, it's just ridiculous to say no, right? It's, it's completely hollow. If you talked about freedom and justice and liberty and the Statue of Liberty and the red, white and blue and the Bill of Rights yeah. and all that, if you talk that way to foreigners about America, they're just going to laugh in your face, dude. Nobody yeah. believes in that stuff anymore because, you know, like Pee Wee Herman's name, they just wore it out. They didn't well, mean it. When they the the lockdowns, the know, lockdowns really the put lock a nail in that coffin. So. Sure, sure. And and um, I mean, it was even before then. And and in fact, even having Donald Trump come in there because even though to so many of us, like the one thing about him was, that, well, he wasn't one of them, right? He wasn't the Bushes. He wasn't the Clintons. He was somebody who could stop them and be somebody other than them. Um, we hoped. But then, you know, look, we needed Ron Paul and we got Rudy Giuliani, right? Like he was not, yeah. he was not, um, there was nothing heroic there other than stopping Jeb and Hillary. There was, and so, and just with the buffoonery and the crudity and the bullying and the just sort of negative demeanor of it all, it just also, and, and this is almost, I mean, to me at this point, like a silver lining in the, in the part of just completely alienating the world from American power that mm -hmm. along with the, the fall of all their PR of, of, um, of exporting liberty and all of that was is like a, a diminishing of the credibility of the American empire and using those things as an excuse to get away with what they're getting away with. I guess I'm just complaining that they took the good part with them, right? They right. took the American way. They, they, they called all this, what I consider, you know, to be an abomination 
and a betrayal of the Declaration of Independence, right? And then, but they they cited the Declaration of Independence all along while they did it, and yeah. and um, and so Very yes, funny. alienated people from American power, and that's good, but also betrayed the whole project. Their excuse of the you know global democratic revolution, which if you believed in that at all, and you know you don't have to be a total slave to like liberal democratic democracy the way democrats perceive of it now but just um liberalism in the broadest sense you believe in property rights and capitalism and all that not modern american liberal of course yeah older watered down you know minimal libertarian type take mm -hmm. um like probably you should want to see that i mean maybe it doesn't matter to you but uh you probably should want to see that kind of thinking and those kinds of attitudes and and uh and systems take hold around the world for the people of China and everybody else. Of course. And yeah. yet, how are we ever going to export it to them now? I, Harry yeah. Brown could have sold them on it. You know, Harry yeah, could have done right. it. But, you know, um, this thing is, um, W. Bush blew it. And then look, everything says, I don't mean to leave Obama out either. I mean, he killed a million people too. Yeah, they, they all um, blew it, let's be honest. But I, yeah. the, the reason I ask is, and just so I can actually give my opinion on this, uh, I think that it is correlation, but not causation that, you know, opening up China, the fact that we chose, or at least our government, our, our you know, higher powers in, in our government decided that they were going to become more like China is our wrongdoing. That's not on them. Yeah. You know, we, we didn't have sure. to follow in their footsteps. And it's just, it's yeah. very frustrating to me, though, because, you know, it. Same, it's kind of the same thing that you talk about when it comes to the ending of the Cold War. Like we didn't have to choose to maintain an enemy footing with Russia. We could have made for a much, you know, more open, treating, peace, uh, trading, peaceful world, and and the economy would have benefited from it. Obviously, peace would we would have all benefited from that. The same thing that happens with China is like, yeah, we open them up. All millions, of, maybe even a billion people, all of a sudden can actually eat you know like that's a that's an amazing thing but then simultaneously every time we have an opportunity it seems like the american government instead of taking the lead and and using these opportunities to increase peace and prosperity on earth they follow they they get closer and closer to the things that we all say we hate i mean every every republican will tell you they hate socialism and yet they're basically ushering it in and and it's just yep. it's exhausting i don't well, even know what, what i have to say about it just no, I mean, me look, off. you're right, because it is it, like that old Rage Against the Machine song. You're trying to tire me right with that, <laughs> because it's, it's all just so hypocritical. And they yeah. claim they claim to understand what you and I understand about markets, man, that what we need is global capitalism. And we need the division of labor and chop it up as fine as we can around the world where the most people, all seven billion of us can specialize in doing whatever it is we want to do and live the life we want and it'll be best for everyone else and all of these things they claim to understand all that they claim only to want to force the rest of the world into that same system of fairness and trade as they call it the liberal rules based order and world order yeah they break the they break the rules all the time they do whatever they want and they act like no one else notices right it's like the cops in your town who run every red light and because we know they think, yeah, what are you going to do about it? We can do whatever we want. But they think that none of us notice that they just have no regard whatsoever for the safety of the rest of us when supposedly that's their only job. And they right. just get to run. You know what I mean? It's the same thing. They do it all the time. Um, and so, you know, especially with the terror wars of the 20th, uh, the 21st century so far, I mean, 
Um, they completely, uh, uh, as I said, they they kind of wear out that entire argument um, while they're using it as their excuse for the policies that they're inflicting. And so it, you know, here's a couple of good examples. In fact, would be, um, you know, the way that we've approached uh, China. So the first thing is, you know, if you read enough already, you know how the Bush senior administration sort of kind of I'm not certain how deliberate it was baited Saddam Hussein into invading Kuwait. Mm-hmm. And then they used that used Iraq as the whipping boy for the first, you know, big precedent of America's post Cold War policy that we are the enforcer of the world law and we can do whatever we want. And when they launched Iraq War One and started you know, releasing all the footage of flying um, missiles down chimneys and in windows and all of that stuff. It's the very few laser guided bombs they used in that war, actually, but they got all the PR. Um, the Chinese freaked out and were like, man, we need a revolution in military affairs here and started building up their armed forces. And then in 1997, they were firing a couple of missiles off the coast of taiwan and being provocative but they had nothing like an invasion force you know capable whatsoever they weren't really doing anything but bill clinton acted all tough and sent two carriers the seventh fleet and whatever fleet i don't know two carrier battle groups through the taiwan straits in this big show of force and they went oh no and then they launched another new revolution in military affairs and building up in response to that. And then I'm, I, I forget exactly. I think the third major one was in response to the spy plane that crash, you know, um, had a, a crash in midair in 2000, the spring of 2001 mm-hmm. uh, with a Chinese plane that was forced down and had to land on Haiwan, Hainan Island or whatever it was. And after, so in other words, you know, I mean, imagine the Chinese spy planes are 12 miles off of the coast of California, flying missions all day, spying on our assets in, in exactly. San Diego and whatever. We'd be freaking out. But we do this to them and they're supposed to just sit there and take it. Right. And then but they don't sit there and take it. Right. They no. build up in response. And but, but we're creating the, the impetus for aggressive. it. Yeah. Same thing with with the um, nuke issue with Russia. I mean, George W. Bush tore up the anti-ballistic missile treaty. And Donald Trump tore up the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty and the Open Skies Treaty. And, you know, they he threatened to let the New START Treaty expire. The Biden people re-signed it. But they're saying now, geez, how can we re-sign it again when the sunset comes up the way tensions are now? Well, the New START Treaty is the last treaty limiting long-range missiles and overall nuclear weapons stockpiles in America and Russia. And this is you can't say that Putin tore up the ABM treaty and Putin tore up the INF treaty. Well, there's an argument that Putin was violating the INF treaty. But then again, there's an argument the Americans were violating it first. Sounds like a reason to go back to the table, not tear the damn thing up. And it was the Americans who tore up open skies. And look, Trump, you know, the root of all evil, supposedly he was gone. Biden comes in and Putin says, hey, let's get back in open start. Uh, uh, open skies and start and the INF treaty and, and Biden says, well, I'll sign the new start treaty, uh, redo, uh, you know, re up it, but I, I won't get us back in the INF or the open skies treaty. So, oh yeah. Russian aggression, Russian aggression, Russian aggression, rules-based order, rules-based order, rules-based order. Here's Ronald Reagan's greatest achievement. The INF treaty that kept short and medium range nuclear missiles out of Europe for 30 years. And then, and now we're tearing that thing up. When, you know, for no good reason at all. And by then, by the way, what happened when when W. Bush 
tore up the anti-ballistic missile treaty in uh, 2002, uh, 2001, uh, December 2001, and said we're going to put you know anti-ballistic missile systems in Eastern Europe. Putin, we now know, Putin, and we could have anticipated then, launched a massive secret nuclear weapons program in Russia that where they developed an entire new generation of nukes. As we talk about in the book there, they have a new heavy nuke that can carry 24 warheads, enough to kill every major city and military base in Texas with just one missile. Unbelievable. Kill every major city in Texas um, and come around the South Pole where we have no defenses whatsoever, longer range. They claim to have, and I guess I'd take them at face value for this. I don't know why I would doubt them, really. Uh, they claim to have a nuclear-powered cruise missile that has essentially unlimited range, can fly anywhere in the world, you know, around the world twice or whatever to get around defenses and uh, go around the back way and hit whatever target they want. A nuclear-powered torpedo and and silent, so therefore silent and and H-bomb torpedo, so sail that into the middle of San Francisco Bay or any American naval base in the world and uh, blow them up that way. And then the new hypersonics, which they claim go as fast as Mach 7 or even they claim as fast as Mach 10. I don't know if that's really possible or not. Um, but they claim only Tom master- Cruise can go that fast. Yeah, seriously, right? Um, <laughs> you know, with the I don't right know if you saw the new Top Gun, that was a stupid joke. <laughs> with, with the American, with the American taxpayer paying the I, the um, ILM budget, they can't. He can, you know, um, Lockheed Martin little trademark at the bottom of the screen. <laughs> exactly. um, but um, so yeah, and, and Putin, in fact, in that in in 2018, Putin gave this speech where he debuted his new generation of nuclear weapons, and he goes, look. I tried to say to you guys, hey, don't do this. But then you did it anyway. And then I said to you, I says, hey, listen. And then you wouldn't listen. Well, listen now. Or I bet you can hear me now or something like that. Where he's like, check out my new H-bombs. Okay. So in other words, you know, there's your liberal rules-based order. We tear up whatever treaty we want. We break whatever rule we want. We launch whatever aggressive war we feel like. And then we expect everybody else to obey the rules that we break. And whenever they actually react in one way or another, then they're the aggressors. And we're, again, the defenders of the liberal rules. Always, always the narrative they run with, of course. Well, I actually I actually have a a quote from uh, Putin today. But let me let me thank one more of our sponsors real quick. And that is Young, Young Americans for Liberty. If you are interested in becoming an election coordinator, go to yaliberty.org forward slash K-N-O-C-K. That's NOC. Uh, Election coordinators are the front lines for liberty on Young American for Liberty endorsed deployments. Election coordinators will flood the district for an authentic liberty candidate through grassroots door knocking. This is not a volunteer position. This is an opportunity to dive headfirst into the political action world, serve as a real field staffer, meet lifelong friends, and travel the country. Each election coordinator will deploy in an assigned district, serving on location and meeting real people every day. Training will be conducted on site and team members will work with a partner to achieve their goals. Election coordinators are provided up to $2,800 a month starting pay. Not bad. 100% free housing, getting better, and gas reimbursement, which is super important because gas costs a trillion dollars right now. Uh, They want to ensure that they have the best talent pool possible to elect pro-liberty candidates. If you're sick of hearing us bitch about this stuff and you actually want to get involved, this is an opportunity to do it once again. Go to yaliberty.org forward slash revolution. And without further ado, we are back with Scott Horton. And the the, the quote that I, I heard today, and obviously this is translation, it was just a tweet I read, so I haven't been able to verify that it's legitimate at this point. But essentially he says, if they want to see if they can beat us, they can meet us on the battlefield. And he says, this is the beginning of a, 
of a bipolar or a multipolar world order. And I and I believe him when he says it. Like I think that that Russia and China and Syria and these, you know, the the axis, if you will, uh, they are serious about making this a bipolar world order. And and I think that it's inevitable. And I think that it would be best if we could allow it to happen without us ending life on Earth. Do you think that they are committed to that path? Because it sure seems to be the case. Yeah, I think, in fact, maybe the more interesting question is, is that what the Americans are going for? Mm. That rather than integrating Russia as a European power and dealing right. with them. On that, any that is an interesting terms, point. Yeah, Maybe be better to just kick them the hell out of Europe and force them to go east. Fine. Just rely on India, rely on China and stay the hell out of Europe and keep, you know, Germany under American sure. domination. Um, and, you know, they did, you know, find a way, if you want to put it that way. Uh, to prevent that peace pipeline, that Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which was just yeah. opening up and going into effect, was canceled forever, you know, once this war broke out. Um, but I think, yeah, look, I mean, it's a dilemma, right? If you're Richard Pearl and your doctrine is here's how to dominate the whole planet, it really sucks that Russia and China are independent powers and you can't really do anything about that. India got a whole bunch of nukes. You kind of got to respect them. Sorry. Right. And, and India also is big enough. America has a lot of sway over them and has made some sweetheart deals with them, you know, under W. Bush, especially to allow them to get away with um, violating the international nuclear regime. Um, but they also, you know, are big enough to be independent from American power. And right. I think, you know, you frame the question just right in the sense of... Um, you know, another power in the world replacing America as the dominant unipolar power mm -hmm. is not an issue. That's not no. what we're talking about. We're no. talking about whether America can rule the whole world or only two thirds of it. Right? <laughs> right. And then the answer is no, just like in the Cold War. No, you only get two thirds of the thing. And and Russia and China are going to stay independent. Now, the thing is. You know, I don't know, man, I've. I didn't go to Georgetown uh, foreign policy school on whatever. So it could be that I'm just ignorant. I know that, you know, people like Stephen Waltz and John Mearsheimer would say that like, no, nah, we need to balance these powers off of each other. They would say we should stay out of the Middle East. Well, I know like Stephen Walt, for example, says, yeah, forget all these principles of non-interventionism, Ron Pauli and stuff. This is just what you have to do see is you have to prevent any one power from dominating east asia any one power from dominating the middle east or any one power from dominating europe and unless it's america doing all the dominating of all of them yes. then like that's, that's a fine good thing. <laughs> because essentially we only dominate them to keep them from fighting mostly <clears throat> again with this rules-based order sometimes we break the rules and start the war but mostly we're just trying to keep everybody in balance not that we necessarily do a good job we're trying to prevent all of europe from being terrified that germany is going to dominate them or russia is going to dominate them right we're trying to keep everyone in asia afraid that they're going to be dominated by japan or by china we're trying to keep you know the middle east from being terrified that they're all going to be dominated by saudi or by iran or mm. whoever so it's it's you know we're we're in there kind of holding this down now i think mearsheimer and walt would say Nah, nobody's in any position to dominate the Middle East. We could just turn our back on the Middle East, forget it. And I think they probably also would both agree 
that in Europe, all these things can be negotiated with our friends. Germany and France and Britain are all friends now. And, and for that matter, Poland too. And Russia, when we're not in the middle of all this BS, we're partners with them on a thousand things. And like, there's no reason for us to carry on like this. We could have peace in Europe without NATO. Yeah. And China, um, too. We have we have tons of tons and, of trading between us. That's right. And, and Japan and China have no intent on dominating each other, reinvading, you know, conquering, going no. back to war with each other or Korea, either South Korea, either. You know, the only real danger of instability in in the east at this point is North Taiwan. Korea's government falling. And then who takes over North Korea hmm. or China retakes Taiwan. But then look, even to cut back to that subject real quick. Taiwan is part of China and it has been since the 1600s, not the 1700s even, but the 1600s. And it's been American policy. And I know a lot of people don't know this. It's been American policy for 50 years since Nixon that Taiwan is part of China and that not China's part of Taiwan the way it had they'd been pretending that Taiwan is the legitimate government of all of mainland China since 1949. I mean, give me a break. Uh, they finally gave up on that and, um, you know, um, and said and, and Nixon and Kissinger calculated that, look, what do we want and what does China want? They want Taiwan a hell of a lot more than we do. And what do we care? And so and then they struck a great deal, which was, look, we'll say that Taiwan is part of China. What we'll also say we really strongly prefer that they not be reunited by force and that just one day you guys will work it out, we hope, uh, and work it out peacefully. And then that's our dodge strategic ambiguity. We're not promising we'll go to war to defend Taiwan, but we're hinting we just might. So don't take them back by force. But worst case scenario, they do. And it would be a huge effort. Imagine the amphibious landing that they would have to do to take over Taiwan the airborne attack and whatever the hell would be absolutely incredible. And you've seen the Russians trying to just roll right into Ukraine. It ain't that easy fighting a modern state army on, on the defense, you know? Sure. Um, but let's say they do that. That doesn't mean that they're going to roll into Myanmar and, and Thailand <laughs> and Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and, and Japan next. Right. Those countries aren't part of China. Taiwan is Taiwan. It's a special case. It's a separate case. And I'm not saying, oh, screw them or whatever. I'm just no, saying of course. it is part of China. Japan ain't part of China. Vietnam ain't part of China. So if they were so ambitious that they went to take on Taiwan, that still does not even portend at all, like any reason to believe that they're going to attack any of their other neighbors. Well, you this, know? Is, this is the very frustrating narrative that they've tried to paint about Putin, that he has this you know, imperialist desires that he's going to put back together USSR. And it's like, yeah, maybe. Or maybe not. And and the real question that you have to ask yourself is, are you willing to risk nuclear fucking Holocaust to pr protect Ukraine, to protect Taiwan? Like, and, and my answer is no, absolutely not. And it's like, do I want the Ukrainians to be under the thumb of Putin? No, I also don't want that. But I, you have to prioritize things. And it just seems like that question is totally lost. No one is actually debating what's at hand here, which is hot conflict between the two greatest nuclear powers that exist on the planet earth and no one talks about it i don't i don't understand how i like my 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 anger the the level of 
just frustration and detest that I have for the media has hit a new level, like a, a level I didn't even know I could get to. The fact that they don't even fucking discuss this stuff. Like you are risking every man, woman, and child mm -hmm. on the planet, and you don't bring it up. It's it's crazy to me. And look, I mean, it's always been like this. I noticed, you know, when I was a young kid watching the news, um, that they'll always talk about who's ahead in the race, but they'll never talk about what's the difference between them anyway. Right. Well, that too. Is, yeah. Yeah. Like, what is it that this guy thinks that makes him different than what that guy says that he's about? Or they go, you know, we're talking about this issue and with Congress is going to pass this law that's going to, you know, confront whatever. But they don't explain. Here's what's been the controversy so far. And here's why the proposal is at least an attempt to change the result of the thing. There's no explanation. It's all just a bunch of, you know, well, your cousin's a bunch of shit getting shoveled at you all the time. Cuss as much as you like. It. It's, yeah. it's worthy. So, yeah, it is like that. And it's, you know, I'm going to get canceled for this. I, I don't, you know, it's just a correlation. I'm not saying causation, but it is kind of weird. I don't know if you saw that clip from a couple of months back now. This war's dragged on so long already. At least we're not dead yet. Um, but there's this clip of the White House press corps. And it's all these very pretty 30-something, well, I don't know how very pretty, but it's all these pretty 30-something-year-old reporter ladies saying to, oh, Redhead was still there, I guess. Uh, Jen Psaki was still there. Um, And the whole front row is all these women reporters from the papers and from especially TV. And they're all saying, why won't we give Ukraine more weapons? What's the holdup? Why aren't we doing more? Why aren't we doing more? Why aren't we doing more? Shouldn't we escalate? Shouldn't we threaten Putin? Shouldn't we do this? Maybe we should bomb Moscow. What do you think, lady? And just and they are just absolute, just blood dripping from their fangs, hawks. And every question is framed. Why is America's response to this attack so weak and anemic and not enough? And what are you going to do to do something more robust? Yeah, exactly. That we can, you know? And then Ryan Grimm from The Intercept stands up and goes, "Hey, man, like, are we going to try to negotiate at all? Maybe are you going <laughs> right. to? Yeah, like maybe we can think of and and um and you know like I don't know, man. I I don't want to like extrapolate too much out of this, but like I, I had a couple TV news anchors in my cab back when, you know, I met them before and I think you know, we've all watched TV news anchors on TV. TV news anchors aren't really journalists very no. much, right? They're no. anchors. And, and even TV journalists, a lot of them are the kind of people who in high school, you know, they were like probably B students or like A minus type students, but especially right. like they look good in nice clothes and exactly. things like that is sort they of they can read talent, a script right? well. That's basically yeah. the main and criteria. So, yeah. And and so like I don't know if I guess there's no one to say to these people that like, you know what, what do you really know about it? Other than Putin reminds you of Donald Trump and Donald Trump reminds you of your dad and you're upset or whatever your problem is. Like, what do you know about the Ukraine, which I know for a fact six weeks ago you thought was a region of Russia already? <laughs> for sure. They you know, give me this crap, you know, um, <laughs> why aren't we doing more to risk nuclear war? And it is it's the same. You know, I like I'm always joking about the cops online, but it's the same thing with our foreign policy and, and yeah. with our media, whatever. This is our security force. Right. This is who's in charge is 
and and I, someone was on Twitter attacking me today for saying that the president is the president of anything. Of course he is. Yeah. Of course he is. He and and his national security advisor and his secretary of state and his secretary of defense are absolutely the ones calling these shots. Their joint chiefs of staff are absolutely the ones who have the decision making power on this. And yeah. and I'm sorry if that fills you with dread and you would like to believe that somewhere there's like a big oak table with some skull and bones men around it and they're actually someone's in charge here besides senile old Biden. But I don't think that that's right. I mean, I think that this is essentially what you see is what you get. Um, and the same again with the, like this clip of this news conference with these ladies who they know how to be a TV lady doing news on TV. They don't know anything about <laughs> Eastern Europe at all, much less the history of recent policies of any major player in this scene and what is happening and why and who shot down MH13 and what the hell any of it means at all. They don't know nothing other than the, you know, the party line is tougher, tougher, tougher. And why aren't you doing enough? Right. You know, honestly, like it's the same thing going back to uh, to the Waco massacre back, you know, that six week standoff. Um, it was the same way where the, the reporters were essentially, um, you know, you could kind of blame it on the cops for framing it this way, but the, the reporters played their part in the scene of saying like, how long are we going to wait around like this before we do something? You mm -hmm. know, when are you going to end this? When are you going to yep. take care of this problem? When, how, you know, people's game shows and soap operas are being interrupted here with all this special news coverage. We've got to come up with something. And, you know, I don't know. So 20 kids have to be incinerated so you can watch uh, The Price is Right again. Makes a ton yeah, of sense. Seriously, like, yeah, what do you know about going there and end it? What do you think that looks like in your imagination? The cops just go in there with zip ties and arrest everyone, right? Exactly. But, yeah, well, that ain't what it looks like when the Well, when I, think, I think that's... It. I you think know? that's what the media thinks when the when they're asking these questions or with the the White House reporters they're like, you know, just go in there and you know zip tie Putin's hands and get him out of there. It's like, look, you're calling for nuclear fucking war because I think I honestly believe that like if Putin's back is against the wall to the extent that like he's been very explicit. He's like, look, we will go nuclear. They and I wanted to ask you about this escalate to deescalate policy, which yeah. I guess I guess the Russians and Putin have have kind of popularized that. Their, their belief is that being more aggressive with the use of nuclear weapons is their way, I guess, of preventing a nuclear exchange. And it just that seems obviously counterintuitive, if not impossible to me. What's your I don't even know it? if that's true, but that is the claim. And I'll tell you what, too, of course, just as you're saying, that's completely stupid. If that is the Russian policy, then, yeah. you know, look at what happened when um, in 2019, Mike Esper, the secretary of defense, leaked out all over the place. I think Defense News had the, the most in-depth coverage of it, of um, a war game that they did where there's a fight. Jeez, maybe it's in Ukraine, actually. And the Russians use a nuke on their policy of escalate to de-escalate, to warn us. In other words, they'll use a nuke to show that they mean business and they're willing to use a nuke. We might have thought they wouldn't. <clears throat> Now, here they are using one. And so the message is loud and clear. That was a little one. If we'll do that, we might use a bigger one, too. So you Americans better back off. So Mike Esper did this war game where America immediately nuked them back. And then, you know, leaked that out and put that out and said, let the Russians know. 
that escalate to de-escalate won't work. Escalate on us will lead to escalate on you. And we will not de-escalate. We will not be intimidated. We will use a bigger bomb in your country. And then they, I forget if it was the, the same news story or a separate news story where they did uh, uh, one where uh, a war game where they said if Russia was to nuke Ukraine, then America would nuke Belarus. And then that would be the demonstration to Russia. We're that's us escalating. Now they better de-escalate because. And, and now you see and, how and where do you think that goes? Work on us at all, but it will work on them though if right, we do right. that policy to them. <laughs> These people, seriously. Again, this is my. Um, I, I need to develop this in writing. Maybe I'll get my uh, PhD thesis on every foreign leader and an American political leader in foreign policy. All of them are George W. Bush. They all are. And none of them are any deeper than that. None of them have any better understanding than that, any better, you know, uh, clearer vision than that. They're all that stupid of idiots um, that they will, you know, <laughs> look very at <laughs> I tell the story all the time. Lloyd Austin was the four star general commander of Central Command in 2014 and 15. And he's helping the Houthis in Yemen. Just as they're taking over the capital city, he starts handing them intelligence to use to kill Al-Qaeda guys. Then, two months later, Obama switches sides in the war and says, Lloyd Austin, you're now at the service of his royal majesty, Crown Prince bin Mohammed bin Salman, deputy so Crown Prince, and you're going to genocide all these babies for us. So we need to placate the Saudis over the Iran deal. And Austin was pissed. And I know this from Mark Perry, who was a very connected a Pentagon reporter who knew these CENTCOM guys real well. And Lloyd Austin was so mad. And he wanted to write an angry letter to Obama, like denouncing him. How can you do this? And, and his friends stopped him from doing that. Um, but he, you know, on to some degree made his discontent known. Mm -hmm. And then he went right back to work, man. And he did the job that Obama hired him to do, which was commit genocide against the civilian population in the name of re removing this group of people, the Houthis, who he had just been allying himself with two months ago. Now, here he comes back to power a year and a half ago with Biden, his name's Secretary of Defense. And you would think the first thing out of his mouth is, Your Highness, we got to end this war in Yemen, man. I never wanted to do it in the first place. Remember how we're fighting for Al-Qaeda instead of against them now? And what the hell is that? So let's stop it. If he said that, Biden told him, shut up, forget it. We're not doing that. And then that was a year and a half ago. And he's still the Secretary of Defense. He didn't resign no. and say, you know, I'm afraid of what Jesus is going to do to me when I die for this and I will not be a part of it anymore. He didn't say that. He just clicked his heels and went right back to work with a four year break in the middle. He comes right back to doing the same damn job again. The one that we know he objected to. And we know that he knows better than you and I. Of course. How how the Houthis are the enemies of Al Qaeda and how useful they were to America at that time. It's just, it's, you can't make this stuff up, man. It's, it's unreal. Honestly, <laughs> it really is. Um, so let's, let's get into the teeth of the nuclear question. Cause uh, this is okay. obviously what everyone wants to know. I, from my vantage point, I struggle with this topic because like, 
the the libertarian answer is always like prohibition doesn't work. You know, that's that's basically what we say. Uh, however, we we all kind of agree that murder should be illegal. You know, we maybe we don't believe that the state should be enforcing it, but you should certainly have the right to to kill your assailant and and perhaps have some sort of uh, retributive justice or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think that the that it leads to a natural question of like, well, is prohibition of nuclear weapons feasible? And and I think that the the obvious answer is well, probably not. You're you're probably not going to get down to zero, but denuclearization or or disarmament or the uh, massive reduction of the the total uh, supply of nuclear weapons on Earth is feasible, as you've you know talked about many times in the '80s. Gorbachev and Reagan were very close to coming to an agreement that would have seen that be a reality for us uh do you think that is that is that our best hope that we just get and i actually i was thinking about leveraging it because one of the people you interviewed talked about this saying you know the the original agreement was supposed to be yes these nine countries or whatever it is that have nuclear weapons their job is to kind of maintain maintain peace on earth and everybody else that's agreed to not uh go nuclear or not to acquire nuclear weapons they would kind of accept their role in the power structure, but then it, it they none of the countries that have nukes have really gone along with that plan. So is is our best hope in trying to get the non-nuclear weapon owning countries to band together? And and could yeah. they do that against the countries that have nukes? Like I, I don't know. I'm just trying to work this all out in my well, head. Well, no, I mean not exactly. I mean politically, yeah, not in any physical way. But I mean, so there's a couple of points you raised there. So first of all, for libertarians um i'll invoke uh you know libertarian jesus here murray rothbard who um well i won't read the whole quote but well whatever you're about to say i'm going to agree with so go ahead well it's okay he said well i'll read you the quote it's not that long he says while the bow and arrow and even the rifle can be pinpointed if the will be there against actual criminals modern nuclear weapons cannot these mm. weapons are ipso facto engines of indiscriminate mass destruction we must therefore conclude that the use of nuclear or similar weapons or the threat thereof is a sin and a crime against humanity for which there can be no justification. Totally Therefore, agree. their existence must be condemned and nuclear disarmament becomes a good to be pursued for its own sake. And if we will indeed use our strategic intelligence, we will see that such disarmament is not only a good, but the highest political good that we can pursue in the modern world. Wow, that is strong. So, there I gave you me go. chills. And, that was great. All right. So, in other words, um, whether gun control works or not, it can't really be justified in the way that banning nuclear weapons can be justified because there is no just way to use a nuclear weapon. Mm -hmm. It is, mm -hmm. by definition, a weapon of indiscriminate killing. And so, therefore, it's illegitimate by its own definition, as Rothbard explains there. I don't find anything objectionable about no, that. Now, as you're saying... And, and I, I appreciate the way that you set up the question that um, and, you know, I guess in a way too, this is a way of pleading guilty that I put what seems at least at first glance, like maybe a foolish sounding title on this book, time to abolish nuclear weapons. It's the kind of thing that when people hear that at first glance book by its cover sense, it sounds naive and utopian. And what are you going to do? You can't abolish nukes and this and that. But there's a few things about that, right? 
Well, first the off, person, it is time to abolish nuclear weapons, whether it's feasible or not is a separate question. Well, yeah, but but still, and I, you know, I see on Twitter like that a lot of people their immediate reaction is like, "Yeah, right, you're stupid," you know, like it just. I, what I, I got it you know in my I mean? replies today. Yeah. yeah, um, and and which is fine, like uh, you know, and I knew I did this with the other books too. Time to get out of Afghanistan, or time to end the war in Afghanistan, time to end the war on terrorism. If you read those books, those books are my history of those wars, right? right. The books are not the case for getting out. No. The books are, this is what happened in the war. And then the case for getting out is just the last page, right? Mm -hmm. But I still titled them that because that's the point, damn it. And I want, even if you never get around to reading the thing, I at least want to like inculcate you with the idea that somebody wrote a whole book about let's quit. You know, let's, Please. you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, that's, that's the bottom line, even if it's only the last page. So it's yep. the same thing here. There's like what four or five interviews that are really about the abolition of nukes in the whole book. We talk all about Iran's nuclear program and North Korea's nuclear weapons program. And we talk about what Syria wasn't making. And we talk about India and Pakistan and their tactical nukes versus their H bombs and, you know, all these different aspects of nukes. But on the question of disarmament, um, we do talk about um, these treaties that you know, there's there's all different aspects to to argue here about the workability of the thing. I mean, first of all, let's start with the fact that chemical and biological weapons are outlawed in the world. And not every single state is a member of those treaties, but virtually all of them are. And as far as I know, there are no active biological weapons programs of any nation state anywhere on the planet. If you know, hmm. I think I think America and Russia may have some things frozen in time. But I don't think yeah. they have active germ programs now. In fact, if anybody's violating, I bet it would be the USA. Um, but yes, it's 100 percent. And look, a, a treaty is just an agreement by nation states. There is no world government. Right. It's a, right. a, 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 a nation yet. can agree or disagree. But like you look at all the treaties that we do have, like, for example, that if you, if you want to be a nation state in good standing with the international community of cooperation and friendship and rules order, you have to have national laws in your country outlawing slavery, you know, private slavery or outlawing pot or outlawing whatever, right? Like we have treaties like this all over the place that um, that nations agree to. So and in the case of nuclear weapons, we already have the nonproliferation treaty where this cuts against my argument and for it too. Okay. So on one hand, it cuts against my argument because in the nonproliferation treaty, the nuclear weapon states already promised to get rid of their nukes, and then they just don't, right? Mm -hmm. So meh, meh, there's so much for a treaty that where you promise to get rid of your nukes, right? <laughs> the will would have to be there. So that's premise one: is the will would have to be there. However, the nuclear uh, nonproliferation treaty of 1968 has done an essentially uh, absolutely splendid job. Uh, a, a, an incredible job of keeping the rest of the states of the world, the non-nuclear weapons states of the world, from cheating or getting nukes. Now, India and Pakistan and um, Israel and North Korea have nuclear weapons outside the non-proliferation treaty, but the first three of those never signed it in the first place. They didn't mm -hmm. violate it to get their nukes. They just had not signed on to it. North Korea was a member in good standing of the nonproliferation treaty until W. Bush and John Bolton bullied them out of it, quite deliberately bullied them out of it in 2002 and essentially forced them to turn to nuclear. I forgot weapon. about that. Yeah. So that's a whole other story. If you want to ask me in a second, I'll tell you, I can tell you quick too how they did it. But they were members of the nonproliferation treaty. Then they said, I quit. That's how you're going to treat us. And we quit and we're going to make nukes now. 
right? But so when people ask, well, how do you know that Iran isn't making nukes? The answer is because the IAEA is breathing down their neck all day. And I and the IAEA knows what they're talking about. And I read the IAEA reports and I can tell you all about their nuclear program and what they're not doing. The negative has been proved. They have a civilian program. You can call it a latent nuclear deterrent, but it's not a nuclear weapons program. It never has been. And yep. sort of the deal is don't attack us and we won't make nukes. And then exactly. our deal is don't make nukes and we won't attack you. OK, good. Let's leave it right there then. Right. So they yep. have a revolver in one pocket and bullets in the other. But they uh, haven't started it. marrying the two together yet. Let's leave it like that. And let's not provoke yep. them into taking that step. Then the, the other important thing is that um, there's an organization called the Nuclear Suppliers Group, which is an alliance of the nuclear weapons states where they essentially monopolize all the most important materials and processes that you need and, and equipment that you need to make nuclear weapons. And so, you know, in order to make nukes, you have to have a Manhattan project. You essentially have to be a nation state to make a nuclear weapon. There's no way to do this in your basement. The way they said about Iraq that, oh no, yeah, I have my centrifuge buried in my garden and then I'll be able to just spin up a nuke for you as soon as the inspectors turn away and this kind of crap. It's just a little, little more complicated than that. Yeah. So essentially you can't cheat without everybody knowing that you're cheating. And then at that point, then yeah, then we decide what to do. But so um you know, to go back to uh, what you mentioned about Reagan and Gorbachev at Reykjavik, most people don't know this story, but I think it's very important that, you know, Ronald Reagan, especially is sort of this conservative icon now, um, as looked at as, you know, a great leader of our era and all this kind of thing. And he did. I mean, I give him credit in right now and I'll give him credit in the book, too. Um, I do give him credit in the book and I'll give him credit now that um he did oversee the end of the Cold War. It, that was him and Gorbachev that did that together. And he was a hawk, man. When he came into power in his first administration, the I guess Andropov had started it in uh, putting medium-range missiles into Europe. And Ronald, Ronald Reagan was like, really? And just poured in the Pershings and started developing the MX missile, which is the cruise missile, I think. Yeah, it was a cruise missile. Um, and, and all of this stuff. And just started pouring missiles into Europe. And then... He decided he was on a mission from God to get rid of nukes. And he went and he made the INF treaty that, that Donald Trump tore up and got us out of. That was Ronald Reagan's great achievement that removed all short and medium range missiles from <laughs> Europe for 30 years, uh, from 1987 until Donald Trump tore it up. And um, so in 1986, when he had already, you know, was starting to build this relationship with Gorbachev and they were beginning to end the Cold War. But the Soviet Union was still standing. The wall didn't come down in Berlin until 1988, the right. end of 88. And that was really the very beginning of the fall of the Soviet Union, which still took another three years. It wasn't until or, you know, another two full years after that. Right. Um, 90. Uh, no, another three full years after that, the end of 91. Um, and so this is 86. When everybody thought the USSR was going to last through the end of the century, except just right. Romano. Um, but everybody else was saying it's, you know, assumed that it was going to last. Well, Reagan, and I, I say it because it's important that it was still the commie red world empire that ruled all of Eastern Europe right. and South Asia and was the commie menace. Um, and this it was a totalitarian state. Um, that's not imperialist propaganda. That's true. And Reagan was willing to sign a deal to abolish all nuclear weapons Incredible. with 
not the red, white, and blue Republican Russians, but with the Soviet red communists. And what happened was, and Joe Serencioni told me the story, it's in the book. George Schultz was the secretary of state and he told the story to Joe Serencioni himself. And it was the only people in the room was Gorbachev, Reagan, Schultz, and the translator. And Reagan says to Gorbachev, hey man, let's get rid of all the short range and medium range missiles. And Gorbachev says, yes, let's do it. I'll tell you what, let's get rid of all the long range ones too. And Reagan turns to Schultz and says, can we do that? And Schultz says, yes, Mr. President, we can do it. Let's do it. And Reagan says, okay, let's do it. So they start talking about it. What's this treaty going to look like? How are we going to do this? And they have an idea. And essentially, I forget how much of this is like Serencioni editorializing versus how much sure. of this is exactly what Schultz told him about like how it would work. But essentially how it would work would be American Russia. And this is when we each had 25,000 or 40,000 each or 35,000 each, something like that. Yeah. Total of 70. Um, what would happen is we would reduce our stockpiles all the way down to 200 each. And then that would make us equal a uh, parity with Britain yeah. and France and China and Israel. And then, you know, India and Pakistan have a bit fewer. This is before India and Pakistan were nuclear armed. Um, and North Korea. Um, but we would be at parity with Britain and France and China and Israel. And then we would essentially work on uh, disarming from there. See if we can get down to 100, see if we can get down to 50, see if we can get down to 10. And then America and, and the Soviet Union, if we're doing this hand in hand, Reagan and, and Gorbachev are doing this together, his That's successor, H.W. Bush and Yeltsin, they're doing this together. And that means we can lean really, really hard on China and Britain and France and Israel that you're going to oh, yeah. disarm too, our good friends. We're really doing this and we insist that you come with us. And then that would be doable, right? And then you have, just like you have now, you would have the International Atomic Energy Agency would inspect everybody's nuclear facilities and would keep account on all their nuclear materials and would make sure it's not being diverted to a military purpose. And no, nobody thinks that the fairy princess is going to come and uninvent the technology of nuclear weapons. Nobody thinks right. that, you know, this is all some kind of magical cure. Nobody here's arguing for a world government monopoly on nuclear weapons, which that was a plan back in the Kennedy years. You can find State Department document 7277, where they said, we'll just have America and, and Russia, we'll all give our nukes to the UN. And then, that, no, oh, we're, that's, that's <laughs> not what we're talking about here. Um, but the reality is there are enough separate nuclear, uh, nuclear power states, you know, uh, nuclear technology states that could make nuclear weapons that if any one nuclear state cheats, then the others could rearm. Right. You know, the most important thing here, man, is disarming what Ellsberg calls the doomsday machine. Yes. And that indeed. is the capability of these nuclear weapon states to destroy all of mankind. And that's the threat of a major nuclear war even a somewhat limited nuclear war, if you had 50 or 100 nukes go off, say between India and Pakistan, that could be enough to cause nuclear winter. Yeah. And that means essentially the soot and the smoke goes up above the clouds into the stratosphere where it can't be rained out and where it'll take 10 years for it to just float back down the hard way. And 
in and it'll block out the sun. It'll reduce global sun temperatures, you know, or you know, global temperatures depending we'll on have you know, computer model. Yeah, it'll lower everything by 10 degrees. You have winter in the summertime. And so yeah, all the crops fail and you have famine and you got a population of going on eight billion people in the world. What's it, seven and a half billion people now, yeah. almost eight? Um, and so that requires for the division of labor to keep humming along. No asteroid strikes allowed, right? Like we can't have that kind of disruption. We can't have the Yellowstone super volcano go off because nope. people are going to die all over the damn world if it does. Well, same thing here. You just can't have a nuclear war of, of this much. So how about, look, you guys hold on to five or 10 and we'll hold on to five or 10. Perfect. That'll be enough to make sure nobody uses them on each other, hopefully. And, yeah. and but it'll be enough that worst case scenario, we don't kill all of humanity and set them back, set the survivors back a thousand years. You know, um, we don't have we don't have it where I mean, look, seriously, and it shouldn't be that hard to imagine. It is low chance, but exceptionally high risk. OK, um, I'm not trying to be too alarmist about this, but we shouldn't just put it out of mind either. No. Imagine the United States of America after a nuclear war with, say, China. Russia maybe is too much for you. We get into a nuclear war with China. They got 300 nukes. That's all of our important bases in the world or certainly in the Pacific and, and many of our most important bases in America. And it also means we lose our major cities. It means we lose San Francisco and L.A. and Denver and Dallas and Houston and, you know, probably Austin, Miami and New York and Washington. I mean, imagine a nuke going off in New York City. Imagine... In Washington, D.C., the Library of Congress wiped off the face of the earth forever. The, the museums of New York City and the, all of that knowledge and all of that wealth and all of that, just everything gone. Um, Dallas, Texas evaporated off the face of the earth. That could happen. And then you'd have all of the Americans who weren't in those cities at the time got to figure out how we're going to get by under martial law, under the control of the new military dictatorship run out of what's left of Colorado Springs or some kind of crap like that. And yep. where, and look, you know, I don't know. Is that the apocalypse? Yeah. I, I have a friend. Sounds like who, it to uh, me. <laughs> I have a friend who's kind of an army buddy. Who's like, well, screw that, man. I got a place out in the country. I'm going to survive. I'm going to stay inside for three or four weeks till the gamma rays go down. And then like, um, it'll be okay. I'm like, okay. After Austin and San Antonio have been evaporated from the face of the earth and the entire countryside is crawling with, you know, uh, zombies and, you know, roaming, looking to kill anyone to, for a bite to eat and this kind of thing, total hellscape that could happen. The Democrats could get us into that mess, you know? And I, again, I'm, I said, and I'll say it again. It's a low risk thing. It's not like there's a really great chance this is going to happen this week. Um, I mean, it's low the, probability. But yeah, low probability. But the but the um, the consequences are absolutely unimaginable. Hell, beyond any horror movie you could imagine. Again, where the blast, the the nukes that they use, the nuke that they killed seventy five thousand people with at Nagasaki is the blasting cap to set off the nuke that would go off over your city, right? And it would just, I mean, maybe they would shoot two or three at Miami, but they'd only just need the one. Oh, yeah, it's game you over know? at that point. And, well, and <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, yeah. So look, um, and, and it's also true too that, that 
the Biden government now has us in a state of nuclear tension with Russia. That's as high as it's been since any time since 1983, since yep. the first Reagan administration, where he was coming in talking tough before he saw the day after. Have you ever seen the day after? The, uh, the movie? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, for people who haven't seen that, you can watch on YouTube. They'll show you just the attack scene. You don't have to watch the whole thing. But they show at the beginning what it would be like for, I, I think it's supposed to be Missouri uh, or Kansas City, Missouri. It's newt. I mean, it starts out to, it's a conflict in Eastern Europe um, that boils over and turns into a nuclear war. And Reagan saw that and supposedly like had nightmares and things. Um, and, and, you know, uh, I, I quote him in the book. They they put out a communique. He and Gorbachev put out a communique in 1985, a joint message where they said a nuclear war can never be won and must never be fought. Yeah. And this was something that was kind of a new thing to him. Like, I think maybe he thought maybe we could whoop those commies somehow and it would be OK somehow or some kind of thing. And this showed him, no, man, this is what it'd be like if just one or two H-bombs went off over. Was it St. Louis or Kansas City or whatever in that movie? And he just was like, holy crap, man. And then he turned into the blues brothers on a mission from God and said, I got to get rid of these things. But, um, now Biden has got us back to where we were before Reagan saw the day after. Well, it's kind of, there's kind of some break. beautiful, beautiful irony here that we have one president who was suffering from terrible dementia, who almost got us into, uh, you know, denuclearization program that would have possibly saved humanity. And now we have another president with obvious dementia who has the potential of getting us into a nuclear Holocaust. That's yeah. interesting. Well, in fact, Reagan almost got us into a nuclear holocaust, too. And it was in 83. And I think it was oh, yeah. along with the day after it was the Able Archer exercise. If you've ever heard of that, it was a major NATO exercise where yes. we practiced yeah. an attack on the Soviet Union. And what and the, the Soviets completely were freaked out. And they knew they just knew that this was cover for a real first strike. It's not an exercise. They're really coming for us this time. And the only thing that stopped it was the. Uh, the Soviets had a spy, a British spy inside NATO who told them, man, you guys got to trust me. I've always been reliable. And I'm just telling you, this is not an attack. It really wow. is. You got to believe me. And then one the guy's reputation was, prevented it yep. from. And wow. then him. And then the one other thing was Charles Freeman, the guy we talked about at the beginning, who was with uh, Nixon in China. He ran, you know, broke the law, speeding, driving as fast as he could from Langley CIA headquarters to the white house burst in the door, like some scene from a movie or whatever, and says, stop, stop, stop. And insisted that they remove vice president H W Bush from the war game. And that instead they have the deputy secretary of defense sit in the chair and play the president in the war. Game. Wow. And that was a huge signal to the Soviets because they thought the fact that w that H W Bush was going to be playing the role of the president in the war game meant that was like one of the signals that they should take this so seriously that it really is an attack. So Choss Freeman said, this will help send the message that it's really just an exercise. If we have the deputy secretary of defense, I believe it was sit in the Unreal. chair. instead. But so we could have had a nuclear war over a misunderstanding in 1983, you know, before return of the Jedi even came out, which wasn't <laughs> like in May. We would have never got the star Wars series. It would have been, man, dark. if I had died at, at seven years old, before Jedi hit, oh my God, I would have been so pissed. 
goddamn Republicans. <laughs> we gotta find but, a, find some humor in this insanity. Well, I got I have a question about uh, Chaz Freeman. I, I got one more one more sponsor I got to cover real quick, and that is Expat Money Show. If you are listening to this and you're thinking, uh, as much as I like Miami, I'd kind of like to get out of the country. If you're interested in becoming an ex- expat, uh, if you want to learn what expatriation is, which basically means giving up your citizenship and moving somewhere else on Earth, this is your starting point. He's been on my show. He's a brilliant guy. His name's Mikkel Thorup. Uh, he's traveled all over the world, lived in many countries, and is your shortcut to understanding that process. Again, you can either check out in the link, you can subscribe to their YouTube channel where you can get a bunch of free information, or you can go over to their website, which is expatmoneyshow.com. And we are back with Scott Horton. I just want to ask you uh, about uh, Chaz Freeman, who was the Assistant Secretary of Defense. In, in your interview with him, he said that we quote, have no strategy. And I couldn't believe he said that. It just, and I believe him, I believe him, but it's just like, there's even, even, you know, hardcore and cap libertarian types. I still tend to believe that like, maybe it's my conspiracy mind that makes me go, okay, these guys are probably like, like, they're evil, but they're probably, you know, cunning. Like they're thinking they have a, they have a real strategy here. And he basically disabused me of that notion by just saying like, we don't really have a strategy when it comes to our our nuclear arsenal and and right. that just how is that even possible right I, that was sort of my allusion to the skull and bones earlier too like you would right. like to believe right. that at least their single organizing principle is evil and that they organize around carrying out that evil like are you really telling me it's that ha- that haphazard that it's that it's evil but without purpose damn right. how crazy. disappointing is that you know <laughs> um I think there's a lot to that, man. I'll tell you. So there's this article um, in the New York Times weekend magazine thing called the Russia hands. Hmm. And this is where I have one great quote out of here. I I need to go back and get the second quote. Thank you for reminding me of it. (laughs) The first great, great quote, great quote is (laughs) um, it's damned uh, strobe Talbot, Bill Clinton's uh, roommate at Oxford on the Rhodes Scholarship Program, speaking of uh, conspiracy stuff, um, and the author of um, the 1992 Time Magazine article, The Birth of the Global Nation, who argued that soon we'll have a one-world government, um, and who was the guy who really spearheaded NATO expansion. You know, it's funny. Like uh, in that debate and whatever, as though it's debatable whether NATO expansion caused our conflict with Russia now in Ukraine. Well, in 2018, when the New York Times magazine writer went and talked with Strobe Talbot, that just went without saying and without even explaining in pure English out loud. It just is completely, absolutely implicit in the entire discussion well, Strobe Talbot, now that everything with Russia has gone completely to hell, what do you have to say for yourself? And Talbot says, geez, you know, he goes, there's an organizing, uh, there's, a, there's an important principle of statecraft that if you don't abide by this, then you won't have a job in this world much longer. And that is that a nation has to do what's in its own interest. And then he says, now, Should we have had a higher, wiser sense of our longer-term interest? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) You know, like looking back. Yeah, maybe. So, in other words, 
like, yeah, okay, he's right. America's interest, right? But on what time scale? Mm -hmm. Just like as a good Austrian economist would would be their first question. Yeah, compared to what and over what period of time, right? So in other words, is there a, in a way, could you sort of stretch and say that like a bunch of Eastern European dollars flowing into Lockheed is good for jobs in Indiana and in Texas and therefore is good for America and is good for democratic votes and is good for Bill Clinton's political career. And so that's our national interest. Yeah. Yeah, you could, I guess. I guess. Now, but you might also argue that actually, no, making sure that now that Soviet communism is dead, making sure that we stay bestest friends forever with Russia, no matter what, is our highest and maybe our only priority in the world that all other priorities rank in 723rd place after that, because this is the only thing that matters in the world is that we never go back to a cold war with Russia that's sitting on at now 6,000, 7,000 nukes, um, as opposed to 35,000 before, but still, um, that would have been the higher wiser conception of American foreign policy. And so here is Bill Clinton's wisest policy advisor on America's Eastern European policy saying in 2018, after, you know, our Ukraine NATO expansion, everything is blown up in our face that like, yeah, geez, I guess you have a point. Now here's my other one. This is where I need to go back to that same article and get this other quote. Cause at first I was just like, bah, and I read the quote and I thought it was funny maybe bring up in an interviewable, but probably not for the book, but maybe I can find a place for this in the book because it really is telling. It goes right to what you were just saying there about Freeman. Um, I'm sorry, I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head. I should be more familiar with this guy, I can tell. I don't know much about him, but he was George Bush's guy, W. Bush's guy on Russia. Hmm. And the reporter asked him, well, Look, man, I mean, if our policy on Russia was get along with Russia is what he's saying he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. He goes, but then how come our Ukraine policy is so aggressive and we're like pushing to bring Ukraine into NATO when that's going to piss Russia off? And his answer is. I'm not in charge of the Ukraine desk. Oh, my God. I'm just in charge of our Russia policy, which so is basically- not run by the same people who run our Ukraine policy. And we don't even know each other's names. We're not on the same email list. We don't talk. Condoleezza Rice does not do her goddamned job and coordinate between our policy departments as they're implemented here. And so, yes, oftentimes we're at cross purposes. Oftentimes I can do nothing but throw up my hands in despair and wish that it was another way. But this is how it is. That's the the whole running the DMV. You know? That's what the that's what the whole report about uh you know from the government from uh from 9/11 where they just said it was the the whole reason we didn't catch it was because of the firewall between the CIA and the FBI that was the reason that we got struck on on September 11th and we still have that but now we're the the potential is that firewall creates a nuclear war and a holocaust potentially it's like mm-hmm. That's just amazing to me. And we're just talking about NSC staff who are just across the hall from each other in the White House, <laughs> right? And by the way, that was kind of an excuse by the FBI and the CIA because the CIA oh, really kept that stuff deliberately from the FBI. And the NSA, as James Bamford wrote in The Shadow Factory, kept a ton of information from the FBI and the CIA, both. And they I know, also, but I'm just saying that, that's a state enough. That, 
that's a stated excuse from them for why they didn't stop 9-11. So it's just yep. it's just kind of ironic that they, that's yeah, still the problem here. And it's, and it's true, but it's just in the, in in real context, it looks even worse for them than you'd think. Oh, you yeah, know? no, for sure. Um, so I think that the the obvious ending point with this is uh, is it is it possible to generate because here's my my vantage point on this is that there isn't political will because there isn't there hasn't been the use of a nuclear weapon in so long. It's, mm-hmm. you know, most people that were of adult age are, you know, nearing death at this point when the nukes went off. And and I just it strikes me that it's kind of kind of it's going to probably require that a low level nuke be used before there's any popular will to actually get us back in the INF and all these other treaties to try and get us Mm -hmm. down to say like a 10 cap, which would have been the dream scenario under Reagan, most likely. Uh, Is that your belief or is it possible that we could like, do we have to fear monger people to, to get them to pay attention to this shit? Like what, what does it take to get people to say, we, we demand that we limit the amount of nuclear weapons that exist on this planet. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, the whole question of disarmament comes down to the first premise has got to be the will to do it. This United States of America is never going to disarm its nuclear weapons, strike a deal with Russia. We would have to have like a Ron Paulian president who really meant to do so and really meant to change things in a better way and, and find a new way to proceed. Um, you know, as long as we have the military industrial complex we have and the corrupted media that we have and the corrupted congressional establishment that we have and all of this, yeah, it's essentially impossible without a mass movement. You know, it's sort of the you could call it like the Ron Paul paradox. If you think back of 2008 and the Ron Paul revolution, the following two statements are correct. Ron Paul could never be the president. And Ron Paul could have been the president. Hmm. Right. Like both of those things are completely right. They would have done anything to stop him. And they did cheat in especially 2012. They cheated to prevent him from winning in quite a few states, especially Iowa, Nevada. And I'm not sure where all, but there's a whole book about it. Um, On the other hand, there's 300 million Americans. If only some very small percentage of us had decided we are all joining the Republican Party. And we are all working in these primaries and these caucuses to make sure that this Paul guy is the nominee. And we're going to do everything we can to make sure he crushes Obama in the general. Um, Then that could have happened. I mean, how many millions does it take? If 5 million ain't enough, make it 10. If 10 million ain't enough, make it 15. We're not out of people yet. We got, you know, W. Bush got, what, 60 million votes, something like that. So Probably not even that many. Yeah. So if half of those people, half that number of people had voted in the Republican primary and said, we want to make sure. Hell, even if liberal Democrats. Right. Who knew, especially past a certain point that Obama has this absolutely locked up. Hillary's gone. Obama's the nominee. At that point, they could have all as in as many states as where this is possible, maybe not everywhere, but many, many millions of them could have all switched parties and voted for Ron Paul in the primary so mm-hmm. that at least they would have a good Republican to attack their chosen candidate from the left in a way and make it better on the things that really mattered war, to them yeah. at that time, which was war and spying and Guantanamo Bay and torture and all of that stuff. And so it made sense even from a Democrat's point of view. 
that would we Big rather time. have Obama stomp McCain or would we rather have him be even better than Paul? And and let's get real. Ron would not. It, it would have been even harder for him to beat Obama. Right. Obama had a huge celebrity behind him. But I'm just saying, like, he could have won the general, too. What the hell? Yeah. On one hand, he could have never been the president. On the other hand, yeah, he could have. <laughs> Same thing with the war in Yemen. If if half if if a quarter if one tenth of the American people cared about the war in Yemen to be over, yep. If if you know whatever small percentage, however many, what's what's the number of million? You tell me. How many millions of Americans do we need to all say at the same time we think that humanity needs a better way forward other than the USA and their adversaries and friends around the world holding hydrogen bombs to the heads of us all in this permanent Mexican standoff from now unto our great great grandchildren's if they're lucky, death in a nuclear war. And if this is the policy, people just have to admit this, right? If the policy is nuclear Mexican standoff between America and our allies and Russia and China and, and, you know, maybe India and whoever on the other sides over there, well, India would be with Russia, not with China. But anyway, um, if, if, uh, if this is the current, if this status quo, of mutually assured destruction between these nuclear weapon states is to remain for the indefinite future. And that's how humanity ends. That's going, it's going to go off in a nuclear war at some point. It just can't yeah. be that this is the way forward. And, and look, it, it brings up complicated issues of, of, you know, well, how does Iran deter America if they don't have a latent nuclear program, you know, latent nuclear weapons program? How does China, how does Russia deter China from marching into Siberia? You know, I don't know. Maybe they need to build up their tank divisions more. I don't know. But there's got to be a better way than threatening to kill every man, woman, and child in Shanghai. There's just well, got to be a better but, way but, forward. But as you it. said, as you said, even if you were to cap it at 10, 10 per the nine nations that have them, that's right. still enough to deter, man. Right. Like, that's enough to take out Should fucking be. a lot of people, probably Absolutely. millions and millions of people. So right. I just, I just, it's so crazy that we have, and as you said, I, we've made progress here. It doesn't feel like it because it went right. from 70,000 down to 20 or whatever it is today. Uh, and just for the audience's sake, <clears throat> that is true. There was, in the right. cold, in the teeth of the Cold War, there was over 70,000 nuclear weapons. And, right. and they were, you know, on alert, aiming at each other. It, I mean, that's, the fact that we made it through that almost makes me believe in God. Like I can't even fucking believe that we survived that. Yeah. But 20 now we very, make more at least 20 very close calls. You know, we talked about Abel Archer, yeah. but there were a bunch of them, man, where nukes yeah. almost went off, where, you know, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, you had three military officers said, let's fire a nuclear torpedo at the at the uh, or a missile, I guess, um, at the Americans on the surface. And then the Communist Party political officer on board the sub said, nah. I'm not going for it and overruled them. They needed everybody's consensus to do it. Um, yeah. And as, as people know now, and it, it's a frustrating thing. I wish I'd said this to Tom Woods. He, he asked me about the, the miscalculation, about this happening by miscalculation. This should be the most famous one. Everyone should know this. This should be on everyone's tongue, including mine and everybody else. When the Joint Chiefs were telling Jack Kennedy, you better attack Cuba right now. We know now that they did have short range missiles already ready to go. And we know now we know that they didn't know that then the Americans did not know that the, that the Russians, that the Soviets 
in Cuba had missiles that were ready to essentially detonate on the beaches, right, to, to prevent the landings if the Americans were coming ashore. Now, if, that, if they'd gone off, that would have been nuclear war with the Soviet Union. We just lost an army division or a, a oh, division yeah, of Marines. Sure. Um, yeah, we're going to nuclear war. Now, here's the maddening part of all of that is why didn't Khrushchev tell us that he already had active weapons? Our guys thought that they were still putting them together. But Khrushchev could have just let us know, hey, pal, some of these are already operational. How do you like me now? But he didn't say that. Mm -hmm. So you had the Americans calculating that if we just invade Cuba full force right now, the Russians aren't going to do anything. And if they do, we'll kick their ass too, Mr. President. We might get our hair mussed a little bit, lose a couple of 10 million people, but not everybody. It'll be fine. We'll win in the end. And Kennedy refused to go along with that and said, these guys are mad. And then only later they found out that the Cubans had nukes. They're ready to go. Unbelievable. Um, so, so, and, it, and it, they're really, it defies explanation, right? In other words, this is the important part. People talk about 4D chess as though like that's the brilliant thing. But no, 4D chess goes, you can't play 4D chess. It goes right. to show like if you're playing chess, but there's four dimensions going around. You can't see the fourth one. You don't really know what all is going on. So here on a 2D chess board, Khrushchev has operational missiles in Cuba. Khrushchev tells America he has operational missiles in Cuba, right? But in the fourth dimension, there are these other incentives playing on Khrushchev, such as his own military breathing down his neck or his stomach ache from the whatever he had for dinner last night mm -hmm. or some kind of thing that makes him decide to not pat, pass that message along. It's something that is completely inscrutable to you and I, completely mm -hmm. inscrutable to the expert Kremlinologists in Washington, D.C. How could he have operational nukes in Cuba, know that we're about to attack, know that if we do, the Cubans are going to launch or the Soviets on scene are going to launch and that that's going to lead to Armageddon? How could you not tell us? That's the single most important sentence in the world that must be said right now, and you're not saying it? And why? Nobody knows why. Nobody knows why. It could have been a stomachache. It could have been because there was a fight between his political advisor and a military advisor that somehow ended up in, well, let's just not tell them then. That, like, sure. I don't know. You know, I or, or the message may have just not been relayed. Uh, he may have actually said it, but it didn't get to us. Like, there's yeah. a, a, anything right. could have happened. Exactly, exactly. In fact, the you know the letter from the scientist to Truman telling him not to use the bomb didn't get above a two-star general. They just bottled go. the damn thing up till it was over. You know, you have no idea that you know what do they call that the the uh, command agent problem or whatever it is. We're like, yeah. you know. They might tell you, sir, yes, sir, but they also might completely misunderstand what you wanted them to do or yeah. be completely well, unable to do it right. And they're, they're still know? government employees, so you just can't. Right. <laughs> exactly right. That's what, you know, uh, Harry Brown said. The military is just the post office with M16s. Why would you expect them to get this stuff right? Man, they can't, you know. And look at Ma Anthony Blinken. Now imagine if you're. His if you're... is Anthony Blinken right now. <laughs> right. You can't make that stuff up, man. <laughs> Now imagine trouble. if you're if, if every postman has a nuke in his back pocket. That's pretty disconcerting, and that's kind of where we're at. It, I mean, it really it really is just galling that that this this like it's like the sword of Damocles hanging over all of our necks, and we have idiots like Joe Biden who basically, I mean, allegedly he has 
full control over the nuclear arsenal. And if he said we launch, we launch and no one gets to stop him. Yeah. I don't think yeah. it's necessarily that how that works. But regardless, that's that's allegedly how it works. I don't know how anybody could fucking feel comfortable with that. And and to your point about, like, can we get enough people to care about this? The, see, the thing is, if you pull American people, if you pull pretty much anybody on Earth and you ask them about this stuff, they say, no, that doesn't seem like a good idea. But the problem is everyone, because it's been, you know, 70 years since a nuke's been used in, in conflict, they they just I just don't think that people are like the the uh, imperative for immediate uh yeah diminishment of the nuclear arsenal just doesn't exist so i don't know man it's very concerning I know. you're totally right i mean this is um you know like i said about the war in afghanistan and uh, fool's errand i said that um i shouldn't quote myself i'm sorry but it's uh that this is the least supported and least opposed war in american history right right you just nobody supported yeah. the war in afghanistan super majorities said we should have never gone to war in afghanistan at all by 2013, maybe before that, certainly by 2013, by the time that we're leaving there, people, you know, in super majorities had opposed the war for a decade or more. But on the list of concerns about what's going on in American politics and power, it wasn't yeah. even on the list of the top no. 30 at all. Um, yeah. You just couldn't get people galvanized around it. And as you're saying, yeah, nuclear weapons, most people think that those were a relic of the old cold war and that they're probably all gone or that the risk of them ever being used is low. Um, especially with the Soviet commies gone and, and they, you know, essentially have no education, no appreciation of how dangerous these things are and how readily usable they are. Right. Um, and, and by the way, you're onto something when you talk about, like, it's not so clear how the command and control works on these things. It is true. That if Biden says fire, that no one can stop him, essentially. It, so the thing crazy. is built so that once they confirm that this is truly the president giving the order, it's automatic from there. There's wow. nothing to stop it after that. There is no guy who goes, well, wait a minute, but I disagree with the president about this. Nope. And, you know, like officially it's got to go through the secretary of defense. But if the secretary of defense doesn't want to play ball, he's under arrest. Doesn't matter. Wow. You, if the president says launch them, they launch them. But then the worst part is that a lot of other people can launch them too. You don't need the president's mm. football to kick the thing in. There are naval and, and Air Force commanders all over the planet who have access to nuclear weapons and could deploy them at any time and no one could stop them. It's not like they're all on some magic thing that needs the code. The magic thing that needs the code is for you to know that the president ordered you to do it. But does that mean that you can't use one unless he orders you to do it? No, it does not mean that. That's just your imagination that says it means that. So you have situations and like you think about in the Pacific where our forces stationed out there could have all kinds of problems with uh, radio connectivity, sure. from, you know, 8,000 miles away. And so in the heat of a conflict, when things are going off and you're flying a fighter bomber with an H bomb under its belly. And now you're, you can't contact the base back home. Now you make an assumption that the base must've got nuked. So oh I guess that God. means we're supposed to proceed to our target, right? Things like that. In fact, Ellsberg talks about Ellsberg was at Rand. And then when Jack Kennedy was inaugurated, he came into the Kennedy white house and then his job, he was like a, deputy undersecretary of something or whatever on the NSC. 
whatever you call him, not secretary, but staffer on the NSC. And his job was to go and review America's nuclear weapons posture all around the world and all this stuff. And so one of the things that he did was he went to a base in the South Pacific where they would train, I think every day or every week or whatever it was on how to taxi their jet fighters, their fighter bombers, um, and how to taxi them and prepare to take off. But you understand they got literal H bombs under the bellies of these jets. So they're not actually taking them off all the time. It's too risky. So they're essentially getting them trained up on the practice of if we were going to take off today, this is everything we would do up to the point of takeoff. And then you go park it. Right. And then Ellsberg figures out that like, you see what's going on here, right? The first time that their training says, actually go ahead and take off. The pilots are going to assume that this is the big one. This is the real one. They wouldn't have us take off unless they really meant it because we've seen all yeah. the 30 times oh before that we didn't have us take off so now once they're off and if they lose communication they're going to have yeah. all these reasons to think we're at war and no reasons to think we're not and then it's and then the way the structure was written at the time it'll be up to the wing commander in the air to decide whether we proceed to beijing or whether we don't you know and then he's probably going to choose wrong because he's going to assume the worst under the following seven different circumstances where he might lose contact with his home base and this kind of thing. And so Ellsberg was essentially, he was going around trying to find all those weird miss and disincentives built into the nuclear weapons posture and found them everywhere. Good um, Lord. You know, another thing that they talk about in there, well, real quick on Ellsberg and they changed this, but we don't know what it is now. They changed it then. But the idea was when Ellsberg came in the nuclear weapon, the nuclear war plan, there was one plan for general nuclear war, just one. And it said that in the event of a war with the Soviet Union, like say a car backfires in East Germany, in uh, in West Berlin, which I don't know if you know about how this works because you're a bit younger than me, but the city of Berlin is entirely within what was East Germany. But the, mm -hmm. just the Western half of the city, wholly surrounded by commie East Germany, the Western half of the city was protected by the USA and oh, wow. was and had, you know, an air channel out of there or whatever, but it was a free mm -hmm. Western half of one city entirely surrounded by this commie country. A very, you see why they had the Berlin Wall. The commies built that wall to protect people from escaping into the Western half of the city where then they could get a plane out and fly out of the country to the West. So this is a very sketchy situation where uh, we could go to war over uh, the situation in West Berlin at any time. So the idea was, if that got out of control and we went to war with the Soviet Union in West Berlin, we would nuke every single city in the Soviet Union and China. And when I say the Soviet Union, that means all of Eastern Europe too, the captive countries, right? Slovakia and Hungary and Poland and the Baltic states and, right. and you know. The whole, the um, whole USSR. The, the whole USSR and China. And in fact, I have the quote in there somewhere. Where did I see this just the other day from Ellsberg? I mean, oh, it's from Ellsberg's interview. Ellsberg explains in the interview, and I, I copied and pasted and tweeted it out. The thinking was, if we do completely decimate Russia and get decimated in response to by Russia, well, we're not going to leave the Chinese to pick up all the pieces and inherit the world after that. So we have to nuke them and kill all of them too. Not because they're in this... Um, involved it, uh, yeah not because they're like uh uh in this uh what's the word connected 
to Russia, um, but just because we don't want them to benefit after we blow our own brains. What, what a what a sick video. fucking mentality! What it's a what a completely crazy. It's yeah. insane. And then, and then check this one out: Dick Cheney, as H. W. Bush now called him, or, or recently called him before he died, old iron ass, the hawk who got his boy in so much trouble in Iraq. Um, <laughs> When he was first secretary of defense, and people can look this up, it's out there. When he was first secretary of defense under H.W. Bush in 1990, uh, 1989, when he first came in, when he was first sworn into power in 1989, they took him in the Pentagon and they showed him a simulation of a nuclear war with Russia. This is what it would look like if we have a nuclear war with Russia. And what happens is, you know, it's just like a map on the wall with lights going off, mm -hmm. showing the detonations. But it shows detonation after detonation after detonation, tens and tens and tens, and finally dozens and scores, and then ultimately hundreds, one, two hundred nuclear strikes on Moscow. And Dick Cheney starts squirming in his chair and says, what is this? What are we doing? How could this be that this is the plan? That What explains that we would, I want this redone. This is crazy. Something like that. And then so here was the answer, right, was it's a government program, nuclear war. So every time they invent a new missile or a new rocket or a new bomb, it gets added to the list. But the old ones don't get crossed off the list. So they just add them to the list. And then if the Air Force has a new gravity bomb uh, or the, you know, the Bomber Command has a new gravity bomb. Well, that's not fair. Missile Command, they get to hit it with an extra bomb, too, then. And then it's also not fair if you leave the Navy out because the Navy has right. these subs in the Navy. If you guys get to hit it twice each, we get to hit it twice each. And of course, each oh, one no. of those could be a dud and you can't risk that. <laughs> but we better make it for each. Right. And, and then, well, and now you got Space Force. You got to have right. them. <laughs> right. And, and, and Andrew Coburn talked about this too. He goes, you have to understand, dude, it's just all about the money. It's all oh. about the money. It's all about we keep inventing these nukes and we keep deploying them, but we got nowhere to deploy them. We got nobody to hit them with. There's Earth is only so big, and our numbers of, are, of adversaries are ever diminishing. And so, like, what are we even doing with these things? And the answer is, well, we got 200 of them pointed at Moscow. And if we ever get into a nuclear war with Russia, we're going to essentially dig a hole at the bottom of the Earth, you know, to China. You know, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna nuke an empty crater in the name of one radar station on the edge of town, mind you, right? We're going to take out this megalopolis, this massive, you know, Dallas-sized city of Moscow, and we're going to we're going to nuke that crater 199 times after we nuke it once. And yeah, I see you shaking your head because you know that that's right. That's exactly how it works. Is that nuclear war in the United States of America? It's a government program, and you know, like I grew up on that show Mash when I was a kid. Where, you know, the the first um, the first colonel, um, Colonel, what's his name with the fishing hat? He was more fun, you know, but then Colonel Friday came. Right. And he was uh, Joe Friday from uh, I'm mixing up my my shows here. <laughs> Joe Friday, this is before my time, brother. I'm sorry. I can't help. Joe Friday, the detective from L.A. came to be the colonel in charge of the mass unit in Korea. Right. Colonel Potter was his name. And Colonel Potter, put him in Google Images, and you'll just see, you'll take one look at Colonel Potter, and you'll be like, oh, now this guy exudes competence, right? <laughs> like, I can trust him. 
Colonel Potter. Are you Googling it? Put that, yeah, yeah from Mesh, okay? Uh, that's Joe Friday from uh, What You Call. Oh, I got you. Yeah, yeah, okay. I remember him. Yeah, so look, if that guy was your colonel, you'd be like, word, I, I trust him. You know what I mean? I bet he'll make good decisions for our platoon or whatever, you know, okay? Okay, that guy does not exist. <laughs> that was just a TV show. And he does not have a job in the Pentagon where he oversees our nuclear posture and decides like, is this really what we should be doing or not? I think probably not. Klinger, get in here. I want you to rewrite the war program so that, you know, the war plan so we're not nuking Moscow 200 times in a row. Um, that's what Colonel Potter would do. Colonel Potter would fix it. Colonel Potter would make it more reasonable and less insane. Somehow he would find a way. But there's no Colonel Potter and he ain't coming. Oh my God, man. This is it. This is the war plan. Dick Cheney was squirming in his chair saying, oh, my God, what in the world am I looking at? What is this? And they were like, well, Mr. Cheney, you're a pussy. They were like, no, they were they were like, well, look, uh, you're the most dangerous psychopath in North America. And now you've met your match. Welcome to the Pentagon. <laughs> you, know? you thought you were the most badass, crazy motherfucker in town? Nah, not not nope. even close. Not well, at all. That that's a uh, that's a good way to end it. I I really appreciate you for staying a little bit longer than we had, had uh, initially planned. Yeah, we really, knew that was going to happen. Of course, it always does. I I really hope that uh, people will share this one around because I think it's important that you know if we're going to have any hope of actually making progress on this, it's going to require not just political will because as I said, this is a popular thing. If you actually vote or if you actually right. uh, you know ballot people about it or uh, poll them about it, but it's just very tough to get people to feel that there's an impetus to to actually act now and to make that kind of a, a prerequisite that you're whatever politician that you're considering voting for, Hey, this should be a question that's put to them and they have to answer it the right way or else they're a right. non-starter. I think that this, yeah. like if there is ever going to be a moment before we actually see nukes go off, it's going to be in this next election cycle because the Russia Ukraine thing is a very, very tense situation. Yeah. And I think everybody should be paying attention to this. I'm right glad now. you brought that up. Look, Tulsi Gabbard tried to bring up nukes in the last electoral cycle, and it's going to be up to Dave Smith to do it this time. That this does matter. People need to realize that they got to pay attention to this. This is not, yeah. you know, it's like Bovard said about, you know, the way they teach it in school is like democracy is this self cleaning oven, this kind of self fixing process or whatever. And, and it's just not true. Like you have to. You, your country can turn into a fascist dictatorship very quickly oh, yeah. if you don't keep it from one and yeah. and and h-bombs can get dropped if you don't help keep them from getting dropped in fact i'm gonna do this real fast because i can squeeze it in here at the very end Go this is it. why it's all w bush and john bolton's fault that <laughs> north korea has nukes okay mm. the soviet union fell in 91 north korea was on their own everybody thought they were going to fall and then Kim Il-sung, the grandfather, started throwing a temper tantrum and saying, I want some money or I'm going to start making nukes. So um, they put him off and they put him off, but then he died. And then his son came to power and they thought that the government would fall, but the government didn't fall. And so Clinton made this deal called the Agreed Framework, where we would give them money, we give them fuel oil, and we give them a light water reactor, which it produces plutonium as waste, but really crappy polluted waste that you can't really use for nukes. Well... Mm. And then they would promise to stay in the non-proliferation treaty and keep their safeguards agreement with the IAEA and not make nuclear weapons. Well, because, especially because of Newt Gingrich and Trent Lott and the Republicans, Bill Clinton, and I don't know if he was ever going to anyway, but Bill Clinton never lived up to his side of the deal. Although Rumsfeld's company got the contract for the light water reactors and they kept the money anyway. But 
here's the thing. W. Bush comes into power and Colin Powell says, yeah, we're going to keep Bill Clinton's deal and improve on that. And Dick Cheney and John Bolton and all the hawks are like, no, we're not Colin Powell and you're not calling this shot, pal. And they pushed him aside and John Bolton came in and here's what they did. Okay, in the fall of 2002, the first thing they did was they falsely accused the North Koreans of having a secret uranium enrichment program and path to a bomb, a secret nuclear weapons program based on uranium. It was not true. They had bought some aluminum tubes from the Pakistanis. There's no reason even to this day to believe that they were making nuclear bombs out of uranium. All the bombs they have made since this time that I'm talking about were all plutonium bombs, every one of them. Um, so that was a lie, but they used that to break Bill Clinton's deal, the agreed framework. Right. Then step two was they added new sanctions on North Korea. Step three was they announced the proliferation security initiative, which said, which is, yeah, the rules based order. We just made this up. It says we can steal and seize all your boats on the high seas and inspect them for weapons and do whatever we want, regardless of any treaty or any law of the sea or whatever this is. So the proliferation security initiative. And then they put out their nuclear posture review where they put North Korea on the short list for a possible nuclear first strike. And then Kim Il-sung said, uh, pardon me, Kim Jong-il said, mm -hmm. well, screw you, Hans Bricks, I'm, I'm doing this, and, and announced, just like in the treaty, gave six months notice that he's leaving the treaty, and then kicked the IAEA inspectors out of the country and started making nukes. And they tested their first one in, I think, 06, and they've got a couple of dozen or so by now. And you might ask yourself, what the hell were they doing, man? They were about to invade Iraq in six months. So your plan is you're going to kick North Korea out of the inspection regime that's keeping them from nukes. And you're going to push them into the briar patch. And then what is your plan? And the answer was they had no plan. The, I, the answer was, I guess, Iraq was going to be so easy. They were going to be able to go to Pyongyang next before <laughs> anything bad happened in Iraq or anywhere else. And they were going to hit Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and Libya and Somalia and Iran the, and the North seven. Korea all at the yep. same time. And no one could stop the Jolly Green Giant or whatever their ridiculous fantasy. And then what happened? What happened? All they did was, seriously, it's like I get into a, a fight with you in front of the gun store. And I'm just bullying you and bullying you and poking you in the chest and slapping your face like, and go, what are you going to do about it? And I'm going to go in the store. Full of money and a gun <laughs> store right behind you. You know, like, yeah, this is, pro I, I probably need like the rest of a plan here. If I'm going to go down this road <laughs> right now, like at least I need a good getaway car before you come back outside. Right. right? So now the the absolutely insane psychopathic totalitarian north korean regime is sitting on a couple of dozen nukes and it's 100 percent w bush's fault it just didn't have to be that way at all it never did unbelievable unbelievable well, that, that truly is everybody if you are uh, obviously we've had a couple hundred live viewers which has been great but we're gonna have thousands more and i i really hope that you guys will support this man's work he has been putting in the uh the legwork necessary to deliver the truth about all of our foreign conflicts for decades now. Uh, please check out. Uh, I, I wanted to say enough already. Hotter than the sun. <laughs> Hotter than enough the sun. Already too. Yeah, we'll get that as well. Uh, time to abolish nuclear weapons as well as uh, the Scott Horton Show and go to Libertarian Institute as well as antiwar.com. Is there anything else you'd like to tell the people about? Uh, only if uh, they live out west, me and the crew are going to be at Freedom Fest next week. So Kyle Anzalone and myself from antiwar.com. And then plus yeah. we're going to have Keith Knight and Connor Freeman and uh, Patrick McFarlane 
are uh, all coming from the Libertarian Institute as well. And we're doing speeches and panels and interviews with C-SPAN. I'll be there and, with you, brother. I'll be there oh, with you. Oh, you're going to be there? Great. Oh, yeah. yeah, you were there. This is We had a good old time last year, you and yeah. I out there. Yeah, exactly. Um, so and get this, I'll, I'll I get, get to, to do a panel guys. on Star Wars with Kennedy. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> oh, it's going to be dope. Dude. It's going to be great. That's going to be amazing. That's next week. And I'm going to be signing books. If people want to sign a copy of the new book, I'm going to be there and all that. So see you guys in Vegas next week. Love it. Well, I will be in Michigan this weekend speaking with Justin Amash at the Libertarian uh, Party thing. I don't know what the exact purpose cool. of the, the meetup is. And then I'll also be at Freedom Fest in Las Vegas uh, the following week. And then after that, uh, next week, uh, I will be at Young Americans for Liberty Revolution in Orlando, August 4th through 6th. So anybody listening right now, come on out. And as I said, support the great Scott Horton. Thank you for coming on, sir. Absolutely. Thank you, Clint. You're the man. Big shout out to everybody that's been with me since Jump Street. Appreciate y'all. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweet from your phone. Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne. If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home. The virus you're scared of will come and it'll go. The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe. Like Nico and Shane, you're probably wondering what's happening. Scared Hollywood left these lyrical feppin' A typo with Luke might bring the nooses. We all bite the bullet, I'm the king of the gooses. Freckles and Brit didn't know I could spit. Knew I was a patriot, but now I'm the shit. Peter Quinones, invite me on Which podcaster sends custom songs Part of the problem, now I stand with the people Dave showed the way, but I am unequal Lions of Liberty, now hear me roar Beat running up, but I got a bit more Robbie the Fire, always running his mouth But I made him a sandwich, now I'm man of the house No malice for Nick, but you're welcome to quit I went over BLM with the fire I spit Friends against government just call us fags Copy the Cairo, put mummies in the bag Liable opinions get thrown on the ground Silky's Mouton was the only sound Getting so hot must be air July Screaming in the mic I rip for 59 Miles to ratio That black guns matter Now all these lefties Got crazy small bladders None of us wanted war But we're ready You know I be bopping And rock steady Liberty lockdown Please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone But yeah it's on hold Where did it come from And where did it go It requires a fight Not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king Get him off the fucking throne If you're riding with the thought You've always got a home The virus you're scared of Will come and it'll go The government knows this Don't get treated like a hoe